Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. The global health crisis we're facing right now has threatened the livelihood and mental health of countless musicians. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub, and their work is more vital than ever. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give artists, crew, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline is currently hosting virtual support groups, as well as yoga, meditation, and breathwork sessions. Osiris is proud to partner with Backline. To donate, learn more, or to get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. Again, that's backline.care. So I'm wondering, I've always been curious about how Roberts decide to be a Rob or a Bob. Like, have you ever been a Bobby in your in your lifetime? Well, so in my family, I'm actually a Robert Jr. So that has something to do with it because my dad, uh, you know, had the Robert name first and he landed on Bobby when he was a kid and then Bob when he was an adult. So just to uh, avoid confusion, I, be- I was a Robbie and then a Rob. And of course, your dad being the famous film actor Robert Mitchum, star of <laughs> Cape Fear and Out of the Past. Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. And, uh, 200 War and Cowboy movies, yes. No, not the same Robert Mitchum, unfortunately. There is some distant relation, but it's, uh, you know, I didn't get any money in his will or anything like that. So, yeah, so there's there's a Bob, there's a Rob. My son is a Robert the Third, and we, we're not calling him Trey yet. I'll let him make that own decision, his, his own decision on that. 
when he grows up. For now, he's going by his middle name, which is Dean. So okay. after you, after you've burned Bob and Rob, you kind of you don't really have any other way to go. You can go Bert, I guess, but that's that's a little extreme. I mean, it, it's crossed my mind just to call you Bobby on this podcast in deference to to Bob Weir, because I feel like you know, like maybe you're. 36 from the vault name should be Bobby Mitchum. But I don't know I don't know what the sensitivity with that is. Like would that be a grave insult <laughs> to you to call you Bobby? I have been called Bobby before and I don't mind it. But yeah, it's 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 more my dad's thing. So, and you know Bob Weir I guess would have only been born a few years before my dad, so I I feel like Bob was like the go-to uh shorthand for Robert back then. I don't know why. Uh, but yeah, and clearly he was Bobby because he was by far the youngest member of the band, right? I mean, that kind of just that stuck. Though it, it, does, it doesn't explain some of the other bands' uh, nicknames, I suppose. I mean, do you think it would have been a different band if he had been like Robbie Weir instead of Bob Weir? <laughs> <laughs> if got, you know, like like Robbie, like, like if it had been like a like a like Robbie Robertson, like a B B I E. I just feel no, like that's true, an I E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a I was a Robbie with a Y, not an IE. Uh, yeah, which is, it, it's good in retrospect because I wouldn't want to be tainted by uh, association with Robbie Robertson. But, <laughs> well, you know, uh, I mean the IE that's like a that's a bold choice. I I don't know, like as, mm-hmm. as an adult man to go with the Robbie I IE. I, I that that's really uh, you've got a lot. You either have no shame. Or like you're super cocky, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I don't know, it, it, I, I I wouldn't have the guts to, to do that if if I was in your. I remember thinking that was like the more feminine form, but you know, gender is more fluid these days. So I think Robbie with an IE is is less less genderized. Yeah, I mean it's funny to play this game for like the entire dead because you know of course Jerry is Jerome, and how different would things be if people <laughs> were like, oh man, I miss Jerome. Rest in peace, Jerome. <laughs> Jerome Sundays, all that. And, you know, I always, I mean, the, the best, of course, is what if Pigpen was just Ron. Like, oh, it's a Ron song. <laughs> oh, Ron's coming out for Love Life. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, Ron. Yeah, like, yeah, Jerome Garcia. That It just doesn't have the same ring. I mean, although, like, you know, like, with, with, with Kreitzman, you like Billy? I mean, like, that works either way. Like, if you go with the William or the, the Billy or the Bill. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I feel like he's like pretty versatile in terms of the nickname or the more formal name. You can go anyway with him, right? Now, of course, Mickey is a Michael. I had to look that up. <laughs> so, what if it was Mike, Mike and Billy on the drums? Mike Hart, Mike Hart coming in. <laughs> for... <laughs> no, man, like he he's he's the most aptly named of anyone. He's a total Mickey. He's a Mickey. Can't... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> He's not a Michael. He's not a Mike. He's a Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. This is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. Uh, this is Steve. And I'm Rob. And uh, <laughs> yes, settle in once again. Yeah. As, we're... A, as we keep saying online, uh, these these episodes aren't getting any shorter. They may someday. No, they're not. not. Not for this one, certainly. I think we could have gone another half hour on Bob versus Rob. Uh, personally <laughs> but in the interest of keeping this moving i feel like we had to sort of drop that but i am always fascinated by the fork in the road that roberts face in their lives to go bob or rob and how that could maybe affect how you like how you turn out in your life 
Yeah, you really only have one choice. I feel sorry for you, Steve. But, yeah, well, yeah, well, I, I, I could have been a Stevie, I guess. You know, oh, yeah, could, that's could have gone st- yeah. the, the Stevie route, but that's a really ballsy choice. You have to pretty much be <laughs> a genius musician or just an insufferable man. You know, it's like one <laughs> of two. If you're, if you're gonna go the Stevie route, um, so we're talking about Dick's Picks Volume Eight in this episode, um, an historic Dick's Picks. I think it's safe to say it's 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 May second, nineteen seventy, Harper College, Binghamton, New York. Um, it's one of the greats. Is it, is it fair yeah. to say? I think this is like it, you know we still have many dicks picks to go, but I feel like this is going to be one of the great volumes that we talk about in this series. I think, you know, by the time it came out, it was already considered one of the great dead shows. So this is not one of these Dick went deep into the vault and found some amazing show that nobody had ever heard of before that he couldn't wait to share with everybody. This was like, this is a deadhead favorite uh, going back to the tape days, back to the early, early tape days. I think this tape circulated pretty early on. And uh, yeah, this was... You know, something they had been clamoring for since the beginning of the series, and uh, Dick delivered uh, with the the complete show. And it, it's interesting too because obviously we had Dick's Picks Volume Four, which was from February of nineteen seventy, which is I mean it's less than three months before this show. And we'll get into this in the episode, but you know you could certainly hear similarities to that show. But what struck me listening to this are the differences. Like, you can hear, again, how quickly they were progressing at this time, where even a show, you know, a shade under three months later, you can hear the different place that they were in, you know, in May of 1970 versus even February of 1970. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about this on the Volume 4 episode, too, and this is like, you know, the the historical montage era of the dead where something is happening like every other day <laughs> that is going down in the, uh, in the history books and in the, in the legend of the grateful dead. So even just from February to May, you know, it, it, there's, there, there are a lot of changes and yeah, excited to get into this today. This is a fun one to talk about. Yeah. So this record was released uh, in June of 1997, June 14th of 97. And you mentioned this, before about how this was regarded before this record came out as like one of the great dead shows and like wasn't it voted like among the greatest like among tape traders i think it was like voted like the sixth greatest show yeah uh i I saw there was like a poll done in like 1993 of like tape traders and this was voted among the best and i think also you know the dick's picks volume four show was up there as well and of course uh the cornell show from 77 
I assume the yeah. Sunshine Daydream show from 72 was up there. Right. You know, like all all the usual suspects. Yeah. Right. And I mean, t- talk a little bit about like, I guess just this release, you know, again, you said like this was a show that was big for Dick and you definitely want to get out there. Right. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, one of the Dick interviews that I found where they, they talked about early on sort of what was his wish list? What were the first shows that he came to the band with and said, we need to put these out and the Harper College show was on there from the very beginning. So he wanted to get this one out, but there were some peculiarities with the tapes that they had in the vault. Uh, they had the acoustic set, because t- this is a show that has both an acoustic and an electric sort of half to the show. Uh, the acoustic set is in stereo, but the electric set, for whatever reason, is in mono. So uh, some of the people who were on the decision-making team, not just Phil, who we talked about, was the no man for a while there, but also like Dan Healy and people like that in the Dead organization that also had a say in whether things could be released, uh, shot it down saying, you know, we can't put out something that's in mono. The fans won't like that. This isn't up to our standards. We can't do this. Uh, I think he also wanted to put out the entire show. And as we know, uh, he wasn't really allowed to do entire shows until volume five. So there were, you know, a couple strikes against this show. Uh, but, you know, now that we're eight volumes deep in the series and presumably it was, well, we know it was selling really well. It was selling out its sort of limited edition run through the dead newsletter. Uh, and they had given, uh, you know, loosened up their standards a little bit or given Dick a little more free reign, a little more leash to release things uh, in their entirety or sort of a little messier than they would have early on. Uh, so they went ahead and put it out, even though you have this like stereo mono split uh, between the two halves of the set. Uh, they also left everything in, which I, you know, I love. I love the messier, the better, I say. Uh, but this show has a ton of like dead air between songs. <laughs> it has a ton of tuning. It has a ton of banter. Really great banner. Uh, it has uh, one song, St. Stephen, which is not even complete. It sort of jumps in uh, in Meteor Res uh, at the start of the electric set. Uh, though I keep saying it was released in its entirety, but it wasn't actually. They did cut one song. They cut Cold Rain and Snow from towards the end of the electric set. Uh, we can talk about why they did that later on, though. Uh, they did. They, there was recently a reissue on vinyl that added it back in, so it has been added back in, but... There was one thing that was even too sloppy for Dick to leave in <laughs> on this release. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it's it's kind of, you know, this is in a way maybe sort of Dick's victory lap. Like he's back to one of the shows he first wanted to release when they started this project and he was able to release it, you know, completely, nearly completely uh, with everything that makes a Grateful Dead show great, even the sort of... Uh, amateurish parts <laughs> of the set yeah i mean like the the sound issue to me is is pretty nominal i i don't feel like the fact that the electric sets in mono for instance is all that noticeable like i i i mean the show was recorded by bob matthews of course who's like one of the great sort of engineers of that time that worked with the grateful dead he was the guy that was working with, with betty a lot of the time you know they both did uh working man's dead and they did american beauty uh, I mean, I think the show sounds uh, pretty great. You mentioned the St. Stephen being incomplete. You know, that's uh, one obvious, I guess, 
uh, sign of it being a let it all hang out type recording. Um, it is funny to me that like when you listen to the to the acoustic set, there's like a lot of dead air before uh, the first song Donnie's comes in. Like yeah. I remember the first time I heard this record, I was like. What the? I feel like it's almost like a minute before that comes in, and, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's not like you can even hear like crowd noise or anything. It just feels like, is this actually playing? Like, is is my CD defective? Is the <laughs> is the stream buffering for a long time? Right. Um, and and of course there's there's dead air uh, between some of the songs, especially in the acoustic set. Although there's also, as you mentioned, some great banter with the audience, including some like agitated jerry garcia banter yeah, some which, hostile banter you know yeah which you don't really expect i mean especially as we get into the 70s it's usually bob addressing the crowd bob telling everyone to step back you know give people in front of this uh, you know, up front some space you often don't hear jerry talking to the audience but he talks quite a bit during the acoustic set and i've we'll get into this in the episode but like i, I listened to some other recordings of shows on this tour and and there's lots of examples of Jerry talking doing the acoustic sets and, mm-hmm. and Bob and 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 them being really loose. Um, yeah, they have a little bit of a like a yeah. comedy act going on almost sometimes. Like, yeah, it's like it's uh, great. Yeah, I mean, like there's there's going to be a lot of things to talk about with this show, but I feel like the the most obvious thing that jumps out to me when we talk about this as a Dix Picks album is the acoustic set mm-hmm. um, because it's. it's I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that there is not another acoustic set on a Dix Picks album after this. You know, like usually when we, when we think about Acoustic Dead, we think about like the Reckoning record that right. came out. I think it was '81, and then there's the Bears Pick records, of course, that were compiled from songs that were cut from the Dix Picks Volume Four show. I mean, and they were released well before Dix Picks Volume Four, of course. Um, but just the acoustic dead, hearing them on a record, um, it's a unique thing. And it, 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 to me, like, it's the first thing I think of when I think about this show. Like, that's what makes this show, I think, really different from everything else you hear. And we'll get into it about, you know, the quality of that performance. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's interesting that they chose to preserve it on this album versus, again, Dick's Picks 4 where they were playing acoustic sets at that time as well, but none of those songs really ended up on that record. Yeah. And I, you know, that's part of, you talked about like the difference between the dead in February and the dead in May. And I think that's what really makes this show stand out is how much more polished the acoustic set is because yeah, on, on volume four, there is like, there were acoustic sets in both of those shows that are, that volume four is compiled from. Uh, but he didn't Dick chose didn't choose any of that material, and part of that is because Bear's Choice had already pretty much covered it. Uh, but also, if you listen to those acoustic sets back in February, they are extremely bare bones. Like I'm pretty sure it's just Bob and Jerry for most of those sets. Uh, a lot of the, you know, Working Man's Dead material is still sort of in an early form because they're just about to go into the studio and really you know, record and finalize the arrangement of those. So you get sort of like, uh, you know, just two acoustic guitars, Uncle John's band, or uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of what another, like Dire Wolf has played electric, I think, in those shows. But yeah, things are still pretty early on in their gestation at that point. So, but by May, you have all the Working Man's Dead material 
pretty much solidified. They already have all the American Beauty material written as well, pretty much. So you hear some of those songs being debuted here. Uh, they are just a much more polished act. And it's it's not just Bob and Jerry. You have Phil on a, you know, very quiet, but he's back there on electric bass. You have drums. You have a little bit of pig pen organ or a little bit of pig pen harmonica here and there. Sometimes you have members of the new writers of Purple Sage who we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a much different uh, presentation by this time. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, this show obviously takes place at Harper College, which is now known as Binghamton University. And I know Binghamton University because I am a fan of Pardon the Interruption on ESPN. (laughs) And Tony Kornheiser went to Binghamton, and it's like a running joke that he went to Binghamton. And he actually graduated in 70, Ah. which makes me wonder if he, like, saw this show it would have been like right around the time that he graduated yeah um, i'm imagining like a tony but, kornheiser with long flowing locks <laughs> right <laughs> exactly big, <laughs> big orange uh afro yeah um but they but they were playing a lot of colleges on this on this spring tour that they were playing in 70 yeah um and it kind of fits like with the folkiness of these shows a little bit. It almost feels like, I mean, obviously they were doing acoustic sets before this college tour, but um, I'm always struck by like how intimate the, the acoustic set sounds. Like it doesn't sound like they're in a theater or an auditorium. It, it, it feels very intimate. Like when you listen to it, it's, it's part of what's so striking about that. It, it really has that like campfire dead feel to it yeah uh, which is it's which is such a wonderful contrast with the electric set that comes later right and now all these shows you know that a lot of shows this early on in dead history it's it's not like they had really distinct tours very often like there wasn't really a spring tour or a summer tour or different sort of formats for tours it was just like we they played a ton of shows <laughs> like wherever they could find somebody to pay them or even if they just set up and played free shows somewhere uh but this is one that actually does kind of have a discreet couple weeks of uh, like a spring tour where they they build it as an evening with the grateful dead and it was an acoustic set from the dead then a set mostly acoustic sort of acoustic electric from the new riders of the purple sage so sort of an opener who played in the middle uh, and then they would play one or two electric sets. Uh, the Dead would come back out and play one or two electric sets. Uh, these nights were very long. There's a, a, a really great review of this particular show that was included as the liner notes in Dick's Picks 8. And it mentions that it was a five and a half hour show. <laughs> so they were they, when they, they say an evening with the Grateful Dead, they mean a long evening with the Grateful Dead. Uh, and yeah, they were playing a lot of colleges. They were on like the East Coast, sort of into the Midwest college circuit uh, in early May. So you would imagine the end of the school year, a lot of colleges doing, throwing outdoor shows for their, you know, senior senior nights or whatever. Uh, and also, you know, this is, all these shows are happening in early May. Uh, May Day, as it is now to a lesser extent, but back then certainly was a time of a lot of political rallies and protests and sort of organized actions by college students, particularly at this time during uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, this tour is going on when the Kent State shooting happens on May 4th, 1970, so just a couple days after this show. Uh, so you talk about sort of the campfire vibe of the acoustic set, but there's also like a really aggro vibe, I feel like, from the crowd, and that's where some of this hostile oh, yeah. banter comes from. Uh, because I think, you know, these shows... 
the Grateful Dead didn't want to get involved in political causes or rallies very often, but I think that was kind of just happening whenever groups of college students got together at this point. And you can hear, even though it is homey and like a nice, comfortable acoustic set, uh, you can hear that it's there, there's a, a bit of a charge in the crowd, I would say. There's some tension going on. Uh, so that's like another interesting layer for this show that makes it really compelling, I think, is that it's going on a, a, against this backdrop of you know, sort of college, American college unrest. Well, yeah, I mean, the country is changing dramatically. And as we said before, I mean, the band was changing dramatically. And it, w what I kept thinking about was um, the the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I guess young influence on the Grateful Dead and, and how those two groups were cross-pollinating at this time. Because, uh, you know, the CSNY record Deja Vu came out a couple months before the show, it ended up being the number one record in the country, I think, the next week after this show. And the Dead and and the members of CSNY have talked about how they influenced each other. And, and the members of the Dead have talked about how, you know, they were inspired to vocally improve their game listening to the harmonies that CSNY had. And it's interesting to me how, you know the dead moving in this more acoustic direction coincided with what was going on uh, overall in rock music at the time, how there was this singer-songwriter movement that was happening and how things were turning away from sort of the more hard rock of the late 60s into this more sort of mellow vibe that was happening in 70, 71. And I don't think that the dead were being trendy necessarily because certainly Jerry Garcia had this extensive background in folk music and bluegrass that preceded the Grateful Dead. But you can see how what they were doing was at least coinciding with what was popular at the time. And, mm -hmm. and you could see that too, like like when they were working on American Beauty, that was coinciding with uh, David Crosby recording his first solo record, If I Can Only Remember My Name. And of course, a lot of members of the Grateful Dead appeared on that record. Jerry Garcia, of course, played pedal steel on deja vu on teacher children mm -hmm. he also paid played pedal steel on the crosby solo track laughing which mm -hmm. i think is for me the greatest jerry garcia pedal steel performance on record yeah like i love his playing on that song like on teacher children it's beautiful although it's more in sort of a conventional country rock type vein whereas on laughing he's like going into the the solar system like it's just this beautiful sort of psychedelic otherworldly type playing and we, we don't hear his steel guitar he, he ended up playing pedal steel with on the new writer set which we don't hear on the on the dick's picks album proper although if you want to go on re-listen you can hear him playing on that um mm. but that's sort of another interesting wrinkle here like the dead's kind of move into more of like the mellow folky country rock thing that was happening in rock in general at that time yeah and I, I feel like the only thing i disagree with is that i think it seemed like at the end of the 60s all the bands had to pick that there was like a fork in the road where you had to pick either going country rock and back to sort of the roots or you had to go super hard rock because <laughs> like we talked about in the volume four episode that like led zeppelin 2 was right on the charts right at that time the uh first Black Sabbath album comes out 
right around that time. I think the first two Black Sabbath albums come out in 1970. So you had this bifurcation where all the psychedelic bands either, you know, went back to the garden, you know, sort of cheesy post Woodstock, like we're, we're getting back to pre rock and roll roots, or you went just, we're not psychedelic anymore. We're just, you know, super masculine, super demonic, hard rock that's going to melt your brain. Uh, and yeah, the dead, right. it, it was obvious for them to go the folksy route because they had started out as a jug band <laughs> before they were a rock band. Uh, and they could kind of lean back on those roots. Uh, they were also, uh, you know, the, 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 the band, you know, the, the band, the band is also, you know, right. part of this movement, of course, and were compatriots of the dead around this time. Festival Express happens just a couple months after this show. Uh, and that, of course, was the Canadian tour with the Dead and the band and Janis Joplin and Delaney and Bonnie and you know uh, who else was on that? There was like um, oh, Buddy Guy was on that randomly, <laughs> which I always think is like the weirdest uh, addition to that tour. But anyway, uh, yeah, the Dead I think pretty clearly saw that uh, the country rock thing, the more folksy side of things, was something they could do well and something they really uh, excelled at. And the things that they borrowed from CSNY turned out to work really great because, yeah, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty still stand up as some of their best studio records, if not, you know, their absolute best studio records. Well, and I think we'll see, too, that along with moving in that folkier direction, I think that also coincided with, like, Garcia Hunter really blossoming at this point like this is the beginning of them going on their run of just writing iconic songs um and and we'll get into that when we when we start talking about the show um but you know just their ability to because i think like i think it's fair to say that in the 60s the dead were more about performance and sound and sonic exploration and this is around the time where in addition to that they also became about just writing songs that anyone could sit down with an acoustic guitar and play Mm -hmm. and they would they would work like those kind of songs um that's the beginning of that and and we're going to start hearing some of those songs uh in uh this album um i gotta say too you know i feel like this is a game that we always play in these episodes where we like hear other shows from around the time of the particular dicks picks and we sometimes wonder like oh why didn't they go with this show um one show that they played on this tour that wasn't at a college was they went back to to the Fillmore east uh for two shows on on may 15th and um i don't know if you listen to those at all but like those shows are super good and they also totally illustrate how much the dead changed in three months. And it's just striking to hear them at the same venue and right. playing like Dark Star again. Because Dark Star isn't in uh, Dick's Picks 8. Uh, it, they didn't play at the Harper College show, but they did play it at the Fillmore East at the late show. And um, how, and to me, it's like you listen to the Dark Star from uh, the February shows. And it sounds like 60s dead. And you listen to the Dark Star from like the May show. And it sounds like the beginnings of 70s dead to me. Like it's a little, it, it's a lot mellower and it sounds jazzier. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just fascinating to me like how in the space of three months at the same venue, 
you know, they, you could hear like that decisive of a shift. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if you listen to that. I love the Fillmore East shows. I don't know like what the status of like, if like when those tapes became available. Mm-hmm. Um, because they did I, come out I'm eventually, it, right? It did come out, yeah, and like in their soundboards. I mean, they sound great. I mean, it. I'm not gonna say it's better than Harper College, but right. it's damn good. And it did come out, I think, eventually as a Road Trips. Right. Album. I looked it up. It's Road Trips Volume Three, Number Three, and the always confusing Road Trips uh, numbering. <laughs> uh schedule yeah it uh yeah it's no i I did listen to i didn't get through all six and a half hours of music they played on on may 15th over two shows but yeah i really liked it and yeah even even compared back to may 2nd they sound a lot better like the candy man sounds like candy man on the record it doesn't sound like this sort of strange too fast aborted version they play on may 2nd uh and there's a little more like new riders dead pilot like uh crossover on the acoustic set which i always think is fun because they add some nice like they flesh out that sound in a really interesting way i think so uh yeah hey it, it seems like these evening with the grateful dead shows in may 1970 the set list didn't didn't change that much like it was a pretty uh you know almost i i i doubt they like wrote down a set list even but there is a lot of similarities between a lot of these shows so it really boils down to i think sound quality and uh yeah the level of performance on a given night uh but yeah that's that's a good sort of under the radar show that is in the shadow of harper college that that people should check out if they want a little bit more of this flavor for sure So, in terms of other contextual things with this show, I feel like we need to talk a little bit about Sam Cutler. Yeah, I love Sam Cutler. And, uh, like, this seems like <laughs> oh. the right time to talk about it because he, he shows up at the end of this volume. 
Uh, he's yes. the uh, extremely British dude at the end that says, the Grateful Dead are very tired. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to get to Connecticut. Uh, and he actually advertises the Phil Maurice show that you're talking about, uh, which I love, again, that they left it in. Like, they could have cut it off at the end of it, and we bid you good night, but they left old Sam Cutler in there. Uh, you've mentioned before that Sam Cutler is the voice at the, uh, at the start of uh, Get Your Yaya's Out, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the one that says, you know, the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, and uh, and and that was my introduction to Sam Cutler was him being associated with like that '69 tour, uh, which culminated with Ultimate, of course, and and Cutler is in Gimme Shelter, oh, so yeah. it's the first I I'd heard of him, and yeah. so that was years ago, and I remember just being kind of blown away that he was also that he subsequently went into the dead camp and it seems like he did that fairly soon after Ultima. Yeah. I mean, this dude had like one of the craziest years of anybody in human history, I think because <laughs> uh, he was only the stones road manager for like six months. I want to say he organized their like free show. They played in London earlier in 69. Uh, and then they were like, Hey Sam, you should be our road manager for this U S tour. We're about to do, uh, I just read Sam Cutler's autobiography, which people should check out because it's great. It's really good. And it covers like some really, you know, essential moments in rock history through a guy who really gives no shits about what bridges he's going to burn at this point. Uh, He's in the Grateful Dead, the Amazon Long Strange Trip documentary. He's all over that, too driving around in a van which he apparently lives out of in new york <laughs> i know exactly uh, talking about uh how, how dumb the grateful dead were and uh the grateful where, dead are dumb yeah that's a great it's a screenshot you may have seen on our twitter we'll, we'll definitely post it again <laughs> when this episode drops uh in that case he's talking about how stupid they were to bring the wall of sound over to europe which we talked about uh last episode and how they just could not keep any they could not make money and keep money they were terrible at managing their their budget so but it's funny because he so yeah as you said he was the road manager for altamont uh if his book can be believed because obviously he's you know gonna be telling it in a self-serving way but he is not responsible for anything bad that happened at altamont he was kind of just the uh the guy that took the fall for the stones uh and he he almost had to go into hiding after altamont because he was afraid he was going to get served papers and called in to testify at the murder trial and all these things uh so he first hit out at mickey's ranch uh and then moved to (laughs) jerry and mountain girl's house uh he talks about the first time he met jerry or he had met jerry previously but when he showed up at his house after altamont uh, he said Jerry was just sitting in his living room watching cartoons with the sound off all day long with headphones on practicing pedal steel. So <laughs> puts you yeah. right in the in the place of this show. Uh, but yeah, he the, the dead were like, hey, man, like, why don't you uh, manage us? Because at the time, Lenny Hart had just run off with their money. Uh, nobody, the, the dead were out of money. They needed somebody who knew what they were doing. They hired three managers at once which sounds like just a total disaster but sam cutler was kind of like the road manager uh who plotted out their tours and if you look at how many shows the dead played in 1970 uh that's all sam cutler they played 149 shows in 1970 that we know about today uh and it was basically just cutler saying you guys need to make money you guys get to get out on the road you can't just play the fillmores though they did play the fillmores like 
I don't know, 50 times in 1970 between West and East. Uh, but you got to go tour college campuses. That's where the money is these days. All the college kids want to see rock and roll bands. So, uh, you know, we can thank him for this show and this tour and all the other great shows they played uh, in the early 70s. I just love that the dead, you know, were obviously firsthand witnesses to Altamont. It was in their backyard. Right. And they thought, oh, well, let's just hire this guy. Yeah, we'll hire the guy that was in charge of this thing. You know, because whatever, we need a guy. You know, he's and he worked with the Stones. You know, on the most infamous rock concert of of our time and of any time. You know, yeah. let's bring him on board. And he did do a good job. Yeah, he them. did a great I mean, job. He was and he was and he was there during you know a pivotal time in the band's career. And I think he ended up exiting what in early '73 when. It, that was around the time we talked about this in our our, our uh, Dick's Pick 7 episode. You know, 73, 74 is like when the dead really started taking on a lot of different projects. It seems like even for them, the chain of command was getting more and more convoluted. And Sam Cutler sort of got burned out in the midst of that yeah. and, and edged out. I don't think he could deal with the fact that like nobody could make a decision in the dead. Jerry didn't want to be a leader, even though everybody like looked to him as the leader. And I, you know, it was the dead have never really run as a very efficient organization, even up to this day. So he had had enough. Uh, but yeah, you know, Europe 72 as well is like all Sam Cutler's devising. So some of these iconic tours of, you know, early 70s Grateful Dead are, you know, he's he's the one that uh, we have to thank for that. So he bailed probably at the right time, too, in some ways. Absolutely. I, the other thing that we need to talk about, I guess, uh, as a contextual thing, uh, are the new writers of the Purple Sage. And <laughs> you, you and I went back and forth about, like, how much to talk about the new writers in this episode because, obviously, they were, like, a significant part of the shows at this time. I'm personally not super interested in the new writers. I, I, I think that they're a pleasant band. I like their records okay. I think that their sets at this time are are enjoyable for what they are. I think if you're going to look at the totality of like country rock at this time, if you're going to compare them to like the Birds or the Flying Burrito Brothers or even like the Eagles right. in a couple years, they seem to me to be this sort of like slightly corny hippie version of that like i with it with the new writers like the song i always think of is the song panama red do you know the song panama red mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah yeah it's like about like smuggling weed and airplanes and like i don't know it's like fine it's like kind of cool but um they, they seem to be for me they're, they're like a vehicle for jerry's pedal steel playing it's like i want to hear jerry yeah. play pedal steel i'll listen to new writers other than that i'm not a hu- like a huge fan them really yeah my take is the same i mean they're like the san francisco flying burrito brothers but they don't have a graham parsons so or a chris hillman they're or a chris hillman uh so they're and they never had the songs i mean they don't have it sounds like so I, i learned in researching this episode that robert hunter had written friend of the devil for them uh and then and they practiced it all day and then Robert Hunter came back to, I think he was living with Jerry at the time. And Jerry said, oh, what, what were you working on with the new writers? And he's like, oh, this new song. And he made Robert Hunter play it for him. And Jerry's like, I can make that better. And like wrote the bridge of the song. And the next day, 
Robert Hunter woke up and Jerry's like, this is a Grateful Dead song. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not a new writer song anymore. Uh, and that's a great song. And you can hear how like the new writers would have really benefited from a song like exactly like that song. Uh, but, you know, the, the dead had uh, dibs on Robert Hunter material at the time. So you can't really blame them. But it's interesting at this stage, I think, how like much of a Grateful Dead side project they were. Because you've got David Nelson and you've got uh, Marmaduke, <laughs> who are like sort of the key figures and the new writers. Uh, but then you have Jerry on pedal steel. You have Mickey drumming. Uh, if you look at that first new writers album, uh, both Mickey and Jerry are on it. And Phil is listed as the executive producer of the album for some reason. I don't entirely know what the story is with that. Uh, but they were very much like a sister band to the dead. And they played, of course, all these shows with them. They play at Veneta with them. There's a lot of like continuing new writers grateful dead crossover over time uh so you know it's it's kind of fun to hear their set uh like you can put it on between the dead's acoustic and electric sets on dick's picks eight and sort of recreate what it was like to be there uh what i find most interesting about the set though is that bobby comes out and plays pretty much the back half and he plays some of his like classic dead cowboy songs he plays mama tried he plays me and my uncle and I don't, uh, he plays The Race Is On, which became a dead song or a dead cover around this time. And I really like those arrangements of Mama Tried and Me and My Uncle because they're a little more standard country than the dead would ever play them. And it, it's just kind of nice to hear that in a different context. It almost feels like Bobby would have been a better fit for the new writers than, you know, Jerry or Mickey. Uh, I don't know what you feel about it. West Texas Cowboys, baseball around. With liquor and money, they load it down. But such an payday, you know it's seen the shame. You know my uncle, he starts a friendly game. Hey, a hollow jack in the winter, take the hand. Yeah, I mean, I, I to me, it just seems a little redundant, especially when you hear, because, you know, obviously the new writer set, it's not on Dick's Picks 8, but if you go and re-listen, you can hear it. So if you want to recreate the entire show, uh, you know, that's the way to go about doing it. I just feel like when you hear the new writer set next to the dead acoustic set and those new songs that they've put together, which are so great, and it just makes the new writer's song seem corny like cornier than they would be otherwise yeah. and it, i didn't know that story about friend of the devil uh but it totally makes sense it's like oh yeah like this is the a team this is an a team song it's gonna go for the a team and like the b mm-hmm. material will go for this other band so again it, it, it's right. pleasant to me but like it, it, it's interesting that like they had the sister band that was essentially doing what the dead was already doing on their own but like not as well and not as interesting, you know, with, with not as good of material. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was just bound to, you know, diminish them, ulti- you know, ultimately, uh, for me anyway. Mm-hmm. 
As you've probably guessed, about 240-something guys with the Grateful Dead podcast, both Steve and I are bearded gentlemen. But we're professional wooks, and we like to keep those beards sharp and clean. The thing is, when you're only shaving your neck, buying razors at the store especially feels like a hassle. That's why I'm excited about Harry's. I got a fancy new razor in the mail from Harry's, gave it a try, and it was a huge upgrade over my dirty old blade. The shaving gel was also a treat. I tend to be a stingy store brand X kind of guy, so using something with an actual scent and a smooth lather, it was like going to the barbershop. At a time when I'm really avoiding trips to the store, getting quality shaving supplies shipped to my house is a real luxury. Harry's gives you quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 a blade. The refills are delivered to you on your own schedule, with or without a subscription, which is great for us bearded dudes who don't need to buy new blades as often. They also have a 100% guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know, and you'll receive a full refund. And 1% of all Harry's proceeds go to nonprofits, providing healthcare access for men and veterans. Now you can join the 10 million people who have tried Harry's with a special trial offer. Listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash 36FTV. You're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash 36FTV to start shaving better today. Uh, so... Looking at the larger picture of culture at this time, you know, we always like to set the scene for the shows, what else was going on in, in, in music and film and TV at the time. The number one song in America the week of this show in, in May of 1970 was ABC by the Jackson 5. It's, it was their second number one hit after I Want You Back, classic song. Of course, uh, other big songs of this period were American Woman by the Guess Who, let It Be by The Beatles, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, and Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. Uh, yeah, I love Spirit in the Sky. Uh, how can you I not? love hippie, the, the hippie Jesus movement. We've talked about my love for Jesus Christ Superstar and Spirit in the Sky. Might as well be a Jesus Christ Superstar track <laughs> that is just released as a single. Yeah. It's got that same like sort of hippie cult thing going on. Well, and there's like a little bit of that in the dead set. There's like some there's some gospel songs that pop up yeah. in, in the country set. And obviously they're not preaching to people uh, by playing those songs. But yeah, the, the, the crossover of like church music and, and hippie culture at that time was pretty interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting like that. It, yeah. We talked a lot about country rock being prevalent in music at this time, but this is also really like a heyday of Motown, I think, right? Like the the Jackson 5 being number one is, and if you listen to, you know, deeper down in the charts, there's just all these great Motown soul R&B songs around this oh, time. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we talked about... We talked about this in the last episode. I mean, uh, that was in 74. I mean, that was like the prime of Stevie Wonder. And, of course, Marvin Gaye, uh, he's going to start putting out his really ambitious Motown records pretty soon after this. And, yeah, definitely a, a golden age for, like, album-oriented Motown. We're going to start coming into that around this time. It's also interesting, too, you know, I mentioned Let It Be by the Beatles. You know, the Beatles... Uh, 
broke up. I mean, their breakup was announced uh, like one month before this show, uh, but they were still very right. much a presence on the charts. And McCartney's first solo record came out um, right before this show as well. I think it came out a little bit before Let It Be, uh, the last Beatles record. Um, but like Instant Karma by John Lennon was a number one hit around this time. Um, but you know, it's another interesting thing where you know, we're talking about the dead moving into a new era, uh, just music in general moving in, into a new era, and we're seeing like the Beatles, you know, this ultimate signifier of the '60s, still around, but like they're fading out, like they're they're done, and right. sort of like the echoes or the aftershocks of of their career are being felt at this time, right. People are mourning the Beatles <laughs> and, and, and and lifting up, you know, maybe slightly mediocre songs like Bad Fingers Come and Get It is also in the top 10, which was a like a reject McCartney Beatles yeah. song that they ended up recording. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah. People are sad about the Beatles. Well, and, but, well, uh, you have the Beatles and you also have Simon and Garfunkel. You know, I mentioned Bridge Over Troubled Water as a song was it was was a big hit at this time. The number one album in the country was the Bridge Over Troubled Water album, which was number one for ten weeks in early nineteen seventy. It sold twenty five million records. I don't know about you, but this was one of the like albums that I remember seeing in my parents' collection when I was very young. Um, and yep, I've got my parents' copy. Uh... On the on the bookcase, oh, five feet away oh, from me beautiful. right now. So yeah, I, I totally and agree. It's, and yeah. it's a great record, and and it does make me think of, I kind of think of like Abbey Road and Bridge Over Troubled Water in the same context of, as like being like end of the '60s albums with like big, stately ballads that are trying to reassure baby boomers that everything's going to be okay. Like that, like that kind of music. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like those albums in a way are, are, are very much of, and, and obviously let it be the song is in that same sort of group as well. Right. Yeah. I guess it's sort of a reaction to these politically tumultuous times we talked about earlier that people are looking for soothing. We can all get past this type of, epic ballads like bridge over troubled water or let it be uh but yeah you know there's other but that spills out the opposite direction with you know led zeppelin 2 being up there still and deja vu has you know it's it's angry songs as well as it's like sort of domestic happiness songs so they were trying to kind of play it both ways in a classic csny style uh you mentioned that uh yeah the woodstock soundtrack was coming out live at leeds which I feel like we talk about a lot. <laughs> Though actually, what were we saying? Live at Leeds was recorded like earlier in 1970. Did they get it out that fast? Yeah, well, Live at Leeds was recorded on February 14th, 1970. Yeah. So it was like the same day as like of Dick's Picks 4, basically. Right. And then, yeah, it was released in time for when around the time that they played the Dick's Picks Volume 8 show. So yeah, the, <laughs> That's it was, amazing. The, the, yeah. The, who, who was very efficient at that time. Yeah. Uh, and of course, one of the great live albums of all time. Shout out to Live at Leeds. Um, mm. The number one film in the country. I've never seen this movie. It's Airport. I, yeah. I, I only know Airport because it's the basis for the parody film Airplane that came out 10 years <laughs> yeah. later. 
I had the same take on it. Yeah, I've never seen Airport. I could, but I could recite to you Airplane from start to finish, and probably never even realized until I was like thirty that it was a beat for beat parody of an actual movie. <laughs> right, and I really have no interest in ever seeing Airport. I feel like if you, right. I, I, this seems like it'd be really boring probably to watch it. Although you know, if, if there's any Airport stands out there. Hit us up on Twitter and let us know. We'll watch Airport. Isn't uh, isn't Leslie Nielsen in both? Isn't there some weird, funny trivia fact like that? Like he's oh, serious maybe. in one and funny in the other? I got to look. Yeah, maybe not. But anyway, it seems like the type of movie that Leslie Nielsen would be in before <laughs> he was in Airplane. And, like, right. you know, either ruined or, you know, raised up to legend status forever <laughs> by, his, <laughs> by his role in Airplane. Other big movies of this time, Patton came out one month yeah. before this show. Classic movie with George C. Scott. Uh, Francis Coppola wrote the screenplay. That was like his big break before he directed The Godfather. Uh, also, a movie, I don't know if you've seen this, movie I think I like a lot It's uh, is a movie called The Landlord. It's the first film by Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby yeah. being one of the great filmmakers of the 70s. Harold and Maude, Shampoo, being there. But his first film was, was have... The Landlord with Bo Bridges. Yeah, what's that about? Uh, he's like a rich kid who ends up... Um, it's basically a gentrification type story. Like he, like he buys this apartment in a poor part of New York. And uh, he's the landlord of this place, and he ends up getting to know the people. So it's like it's kind of like, it's kind of a white savior movie in a way, because he's like this white guy yeah. who like learns how to, uh, uh, you know, associate with like people of uh, of different cultures. But it's also a How Ashby movie, so it's a little more nuanced and sophisticated than that. So yeah, I'd recommend checking it out yeah. for all you How Ashby yeah. completists out there. You should go see the landlord. Um, number one show in America. Ronan Martin's Laughing, which I remember watching on Nick and Night a long time ago, and I <laughs> it did not hold up. I yeah, I was like, I, I feel like if I was alive in the '60s, I would have thought it was hilarious. But as a 13 year old in like 1991, when I saw it on Nick at Night, it, I think I thought Goldie Hawn was attractive at that time. But right. yeah, that that would have. But like Ruth Buzzy, I didn't think Ruth Buzzy was all that funny, really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's weird. That's it's indicative of how I think quickly, maybe not that quickly, since you know you're sort of three years past the summer of love at this point. But that TV, mainstream television, and mainstream movies latched on to the psychedelic scene and commodified it in a really cheesy style. Uh, and it's funny to think about how the dead are sort of steering out of that scene right as we speak but meanwhile on tv there's this you know very watered down version of psychedelic art and you know hippie lingo being aired to you know the uh the common people of the united states so right yeah well you know and you made this point in the, in the outline that it's a very like once in a po- once upon a time in hollywood type uh scene on on television because era yeah, because you have Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Mayberry, RFD, and Family Affair round <laughs> out the top five. So like we're still a few years from like the All in the Family, Mash, Sanford and Son, <laughs> you know, like the, like which is like the seventies. Yeah, yeah, like like <laughs> like that's very like this feels still like it's like sixties like Gunsmoke. I mean that seems so sixties. Yeah, um, well you know, I can it, see like 
what's Leo's character called in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? What's Rick Dalton. Name? Rick Dalton. There you go. He would have been a guest star on all of these shows that you just right. listed off, right? He would. He would have been. Yeah, he would have like gotten killed at the end of all those shows, <laughs> or or, or, right. or hauled off to jail. What's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimmy got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so let's get into the show here. And um, disc one um, is the acoustic set, of course. And, you know, for me, I don't know how you feel about this, but like, um, you know, and we're going to go through every song and, and, and talk about like, you know, our feelings on each track. But like, to me, like this is very much of a piece, like this whole set. Um, and... I, I said this before, like, I, 
this is such a unique set, I think, for a Dick's Picks album. And really for, like, I think Grateful Dead live albums in general. Like, there's not a ton of acoustic dead uh, that's been released. And they they didn't play acoustic, like, a whole lot, to my wow. knowledge, like, beyond, like, th- you know, this period, uh, you know, in, in early 70. Um, but it's a very Jerry-heavy set. And it's also yeah. filled with songs that are new and are, uh, you know, future classics, essentially. And, um, yeah. and, and for me, like, this really is the advent of Garcia Hunter becoming, like, one of the great songwriting partnerships in, in rock history. Where, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, obviously there's, like, examples from the 60s dead of, like, songs that we all love. But I don't really think of them as, like, a songwriting band in the 60s in the way that I think they become, especially in this period from like say, like 70 to 74, just the songs that they're going to start turning out um, where again, like that, this is sort of like a cliche standard, but like that idea of like a song that is so well-written that like anyone can just pull out an acoustic guitar and play it and yeah. it makes sense and it sounds good. Like those are the kind of songs that they're going to start writing at this time. And, and, and you see them spotlighted, in this set when they're brand new and uh it, it's really striking to me like how good they sound like in this set right. well and you can hear it like the split between the acoustic and the electric set is that the electric set is heavy on those older 60s songs that were, had been in the dead repertoire for a while so you can really hear that juxtaposition i would say between here's like the next era of garcia hunter dead classics and followed up by here's all the songs that were more them sort of learning how to how to write songs right i mean jerry even talks about like there was a flip somewhere around this time between songs that were really busy and had lots of parts and lots of words uh that he was kind of learning on the fly were not the greatest things to play live in front of an audience and so they wanted to simplify things and streamline things and bring it back to more of like a folky song structure uh yeah so this set does a great job of showing you know that change in eras that the dead were going through uh a a few months ago for groundhog day uh you did uh you asked a very good question some good social media interaction on the 36 from the vault account uh which was what what would be if you know like a groundhog day theme if you could only pick one dicks picks to listen to for the rest of your life, uh, which one would you pick? And I actually picked this volume. I picked, though I, you know, I've, I'm on the record uh, a few episodes ago as saying that volume four is my favorite dicks picks. Uh, but I would take volume eight in those circumstances over volume four. Uh, be, and it's because of this acoustic set, uh, because it shows you get both sides of the dead in that way that volume four really doesn't give you right so the acoustic set gives you sort of the sneak peek of the future as well as this like blast from the past electric set uh so yeah i I totally agree that's what sets us apart from really any other dicks picks in the collection is that you have this really special uh acoustic set that just sounds amazing you know to this day it's and so unique and i just have to say and i feel like i've said this before but um i just um I'm always blown away by how well Garcia Hunter could write in a folk idiom in a way where the songs actually seem like they're actual folk songs, you know, and I, we, we, we talked about, 
the dead fitting in a um, in a context like with CSNY or the band. You could also bring up Bob Dylan. Surely, you know, he was moving in a country rock direction a couple years before this. Um, but what I, I always feel like is unique about Garcia Hunter is that, like, if you listen to, like, Robbie Robertson songs, you listen to Bob Dylan songs, I always feel like as great as their songs are, you know, there's a modernist quality to their songs. Like, they, they seem like they were written... They, they sound like songs that were written in a modern context and maybe emulating an older style. Um, and, and there's maybe a more sort of self-awareness that's embedded in their songs. And I don't mean that as a criticism because I, I love their songs, but I, I think it's like a quality of, of Robertson's writing and Dylan's writing. Whereas with Hunter as a lyricist, I just feel like he was able to write songs that seem like they came from the earth. You know, while yeah. also having a literary quality to them, and then Garcia's knowledge and love of traditional folk music and bluegrass, how he's able to marry that with Hunter's lyrics, it's so unique. And we'll talk about specific songs as we get into this set, but um, just hearing them in this stripped-down form um, really just sort of reiterates the quality of the songwriting. Because like even like some of these songs, you know we hear some of these songs played on other live records on other dicks picks but they're not they're usually played as a full band and they're not right. played in uh the way that they appeared on the records or in this sort of more intimate style so sometimes the songwriting can get lost a little bit so i i feel like the songwriting really comes through uh in this yeah. set in a way that maybe it doesn't that was it. come across i think you uh yeah you nailed it with hunter like he is so capable of writing a song that sounds timeless immediately <laughs> and all these songs are brand new at this point and they already sound like a hundred years old right like oh, yeah it, and I, I i joke about this all the time that you know hunter never you know met a gambling metaphor that he didn't like <laughs> <laughs> and like whenever he gets writer's block it's always like what 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 sort of card metaphor can I use right now? <laughs> or what, what sort of dice thing can I say? Uh, but, you know, most of his songs end up being about gambling and drinking, and that makes them sound like old blues songs, because what are old blues songs about? But gambling and drinking and murder and, you know, leaving your woman and all these things. And he was just so good at, like, yeah, you're right, where Dylan is doing sort of a postmodern take on that idiom. Like, Hunter is just doing just a really good and earnest and loving facsimile of the material of old folk and blues songs. And it's, it, you know, it's a little bit Hunter and a little bit Jerry's vocal performance of these songs too, where he just right. sings them so well that you believe it. Right. Like, Oh yeah. I, yeah. Any of the songs in this set, you know, it's, yeah, it's 50% Jerry singing these, singing his heart out with these words and making you like really feel their emotions in a way that you know dylan certainly could never do the band were a little bit closer to this the band are somewhere like between dylan and the dead on this where you know a song like the weight sounds like an old-timey song in a lot of ways or they're always coming up with old crazy characters and their songs that like feel like very lived in romantic classic folk characters but yeah garcia and hunter in this era there, there's nobody that can touch them for that sort of faux authenticity which still feels just as real as the real thing and like even the band and again i love the band so much and i love the songs that robbie robertson wrote and as well as 
you know, man, Richard Manuel and when he was writing at, at that time. Um, but I, I even feel like Robertson is like a little bit show show offy in his writing. You know, there's like a little bit more of a flourish. And I, I always feel like with Hunter, he just had this ability to write great, smart lyrics that hook you in, but also didn't seem like they were calling attention to themselves. And I don't know how he I don't know how he did that. But like, because you read his lyrics and you're like, God, these are really good. And like, they tell a story, they put across a point in not a lot of words. There's a lot of art involved in the writing here, but it, it doesn't call attention to itself, um, which I which I think also lends itself to like why these songs just feel like they were already 100 years old, like when they were playing, you know, like when they were essentially like kind of debuting these songs uh, in this period. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it helps that they also kind of hide these songs amongst a bunch of traditionals, especially in right. these sets. Like they, they start with two songs that are straight up traditionals, right? That the Dead are just doing their own spin on. So for people who hadn't, and remember, Working Man's Dead hadn't come out; it had been recorded. Uh, American Beauty hadn't been recorded yet; it would come out later this year. So everybody in the crowd is hearing most of these songs for the first time. They don't know what is a cover, what is a new dead song. Uh, it just all sounds of a piece. And I think that, that that helps sort of, you know, maybe by osmosis, borrow a little authenticity <laughs> from right. a song like, for instance, Don't Ease Me In, which leads off this set. Uh, and it's a song that the dead would play a lot over their different eras, but is a, you know, a traditional. Yeah, and like a song that... Strangely enough, I didn't end up on a record until "Go to Heaven" in, in 1980. Yeah, when it sounds a lot yeah, different, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, but yeah, it was a song that uh, that the Dead played throughout their history. You know, well before that, and uh, often known as "Do Knees" too. Like some some people may may think this <laughs> song's called "Do D O U G H Knees," um, but yeah, as we said before it's kind of an awkward opening because there is like a long gap before the song kicks in um which right. you know if you're a dead fan i, I mean that's maybe like one of the great things about this album is because you feel like it hasn't been overly polished uh to death um but uh once they kick in they really kick in i mean it sounds great once they actually get around to starting it. Yeah, I I, I I like this version a lot better than the Go to Heaven version and the sort of 80s, 90s dead <laughs> version. I always, the thing that always bugs me about the later version is how, like, precise they pronounce night, where they say all night <laughs> long coming home. Like, I just think that is so antithetical to, like, the folky origins of this song and it sounds so like mannered and it like gives me the willies um but yeah this version is really cool it's got pig pen i believe playing harmonica which you know pig pen didn't have a lot to do surprisingly <laughs> in these acoustic sets there's other ones where he plays katie may which is the the, the rare pig pen song that he plays guitar on uh but i and you can kind of hear organ very faintly in the background of some songs but I kind of imagine Pigpen just sort of sitting on the side of the stage and boozing until uh, the electric set. Uh, but so it's good to hear him uh, contribute a little bit here. I also want to mention something that I learned about the acoustic sets uh, from the Dead Essays blog, uh, which is that uh, they only would use one drummer for the acoustic sets, but it wasn't always the same drummer. So Billy would do some nights and Mickey would do other nights. 
and it's never oh. uh it's it's only there's only a few nights where they've documented due to photos or whatever which drummer it was uh and one of the nights that they they're not sure is the Harper College show so this this is going to hmm. this is going to be my uh my social media interaction after this episode drops is do people think it was Billy or Mickey drumming on this set and, uh, Can we get Mickey on the horn? Can we, <laughs> maybe we'll we'll at we'll at Mickey on Twitter. I'm sure he'll remember. Oh yeah, they had, you know if he played on this show or not. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever interviewed a member of the Dead, but uh, the memory is oh, memory is not so good. <laughs> I interviewed Mickey. You Mickey's did? Okay. the one member of the Dead I've interviewed. <laughs> All right, uh, Michael. I I interviewed Michael Hart. <laughs> he was great. Yeah, I love I, I love talking to to Michael. He he was awesome. Uh, yeah, I talked about I, I interviewed him when he put out the record. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It came out a couple of years the ago. It the has the dude from Animal guys. Collective yeah. on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is might as well be the title of it. I feel like that's how everyone refers to it. <laughs> oh, it's the one with the dude from Animal Collective yeah. on it. Um, uh, so the next song they play, it's an. This is an interesting uh, call here. It's I know you, writer. Yeah. Which of course we've all heard a million times from the dead, but historically we hear it most often electrically, and we play and we hear it in tandem with uh with china so but this is not a china writer it's just that it's an acoustic i know you writer and uh it sounds great again sounds really good yeah. um this version yeah it's like a slow note. i know you writer and it like sounds a little bit like bird song to me i think before bird song was written yeah it's right it's got an extra verse uh that they don't play when they play it electric the i'd rather drink muddy water than sleep in a hollow log verse <laughs> which is yeah very folksy uh it's cool and it's interesting because you know i mentioned the fillmore east show before they played i know your writer in that show and they played it electric they played it with china it was like it's the beginning of the of the electric set they play a china writer at the beginning of that it's also interesting in that fillmore east show they play the ballad of casey jones yeah which is a different song from casey jones which they right. play, which they play in this show later on, in the electric set, um, and uh, they also play an electric direwolf in the Phil Marie show, whereas they play that acoustically in this show. So, you know, we mentioned that they were playing a lot of the same songs in these sets, but sometimes they were shifting between the acoustic set and the electric set. Yeah, like a uh, new Speedway Boogie gets flips between the two sometimes in may like they sort of do like a half acoustic half electric version some shows and other shows just do an electric version cumberland blues i think also has both acoustic and electric versions of this time so right yeah it's fun to see the song sort of move between formats like that but this version in particular if i know you're writer i, I really like it because it just reminds you of where that song comes from essentially like it, it feels like this is the sort of like we're playing it the the way that we learned it you know this is the more like folky version of this song that we often play as like a barn burner in our sets right um the next song uh is one of the all-time great grateful dead songs friend of the devil and it's a real treat on this record because normally when we hear this song I mean, it's come up. Um, I'm trying to remember like when else they played this. I think they played it. Um, was it volume it was five volume or six? six? Volume six. Yeah. It's usually the slowed down electric, like full band version. And here they are. They're playing it essentially the way that it'll appear on American Beauty. Sped up, folky, 
And, uh, you know, this is an example of a song that, like, I remember, like, when I first heard it, I thought this was an old folk song. I didn't realize that this was a, a Garcia Hunter song. And I remember being really surprised <laughs> that they wrote this because it just, if I hadn't known that, I would have thought, oh, this is just like, I know you writer, you know, that, that this was mm-hmm. some standard that they rearranged and, and they, and they updated. Um, but yeah, hearing it in this version, um, it was just a great way to hear it, you know, and it, it really is my favorite way to hear it. I like the slow full band version too, but this is really, I think the ideal way to hear friend of the devil. Yeah. I mean, it already sounds like it does. It will on American beauty, right? That like this, Oh yeah. It's another song that arrived just fully formed. Um, the sound on this acoustic set, we talked earlier about how the acoustic sets in stereo and the electrics in mono, the, the sound on the acoustic set is incredible. And they mixed it, you know, with Jerry's guitar on one channel and Bob in the other. And hearing that double acoustic play off each other is just, it's so good. What a great, like, headphones experience. And this whole set really, it sounds great on headphones. And the fact that it's like a May set, too. And, you know, for once, we are actually pretty close to, like, celebrating the anniversary. I think this episode (laughs) will come out a couple yeah. days after the 50th anniversary but you know we've been listening to this album this volume a lot uh in you know sort of mid to late april here and this is just like a show that i'll always turn to in the spring when it's just starting to get nice outside and you start oh, yeah. and hanging out in the backyard and this whole set i mean it's just perfect for that environment and you know this song is a great example of that yeah, uh, I mean, but then I, everybody gets angry at uh, Binghamton University. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right I mean, afterwards they are not soothed at all by Friend of the Devil. One's name, sweet Anne Marie, she's my heart's delight. Second one is prison, babe, the sheriff's on my trail. And if it catches up with me, I'll spend my life in jail. Got a wife and chill, babe, and one in Cherokee. The first one says she got my child, but it don't look like me. Sit out running, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. Yeah, it, it, it turns into like you know Dylan at Manchester Free Trade Hall a little <laughs> bit at the end of this, at the end of this song. And it's funny because well, okay, so Jerry and like Jerry's perturbed, which is not only is Jerry talking, but he's like irritated yeah. with the audience. And he says, yeah, he says, everybody just relax. We have you all night. And then people cheer after that. Um, And then someone says, how do you expect us to play when you're screaming? Is that Jerry that says that? I don't know, actually. Or is that? It could be Bob. Is that Bob or Phil? Sounds more like a Bob thing. Actually, sounds a lot like a Phil thing. (laughs) But I don't think Phil had a microphone for this set, so. (laughs) I don't don't think it's Bob. Like, Bob says something like, you know, it's like you guys need to be a mature audience. He kind of has that, like Bob Lilt <laughs> in his voice, yeah, you know. Uh, but 
it's like the how do you because like the whoever says how do you expect us to play when you're screaming yeah. sounds like genuinely like annoyed <laughs> like by the audience yeah. and I'm like I think that's Jerry pretty sure it's but I don't know we'll we'll, we'll let the the listeners tell us who they think it is <laughs> um, but yeah it's just it's just like wow it's like it's just amazing to hear Jerry get pissed at the crowd yeah like it's like oh it's, there you go it's another reason why this album is special. You hear some pissed off Jerry yeah. during the great That's acoustic a rarity. set. <laughs> so after that, another great new dead song that became a standard very quickly, Dire Wolf. And this is another song that like just seems like if you hadn't known that Garcia Hunter wrote this, you you could clearly just think that it was like some song from like Appalachia or something. Right. You know, that they had dug out from like or from like an Alan Lomax compilation mm-hmm. uh at some point but yeah as we said before this was another song that they were sort of playing electrically in some shows although this version of course is closer to the version that ultimately ends up on working men's dead uh, that comes out a little bit after this show right yeah and like really sort of taps into the dark vibes of the era even if it is you know a, a light acoustic set it's you know it's got dark lyrics and this is a version where Bob says in the middle of the song, I smell gunpowder, <laughs> which I don't know if Bob is joking or not. But, you know, as I said, Kent State's only a couple days away. Like there's riots on campuses happening. Like there's something going on at the in the venue at this point that uh, is making them a little bit nervous. So, you know, don't murder me is not just a flippant turn of phrase at this time. And uh Yeah. It's it's got a cool tension to it, and that's always the thing with the dead too. Is that even when they're in this fairly jaunty, upbeat mode, there's always the darkness that exists in their yeah. music, which is Creeping I think, in. All, which you know, and again, you know, not to keep knocking new writers of the Purple Sage, but like if when you hear a song like Direwolf, and the way that the dead deliver it, the power of that song, it was just gonna make the songs in the new writer sets seem a little callow, you know, like there's already real depth to what the dead were doing. And it it is a fascinating juxtaposition because, you know, one thing that I think that's easy for us to forget sometimes when we look back is how unusual in many ways it was for a band like the dead to be playing this roots American music and like how easily that could have gone wrong. Like how they could have just looked like tourists, essentially, like in this yep. in this realm. And you hear this set, and there's no question that uh, about sort of their earnestness or their or their authenticity or their authority playing this kind of music. Like they are obviously uh, justified in, in in digging into this kind of music, and they can play it extremely well. Um, yeah and it's kind of a miracle that they were able to do that. I mean, because it, it could have easily just looked like these sort of hippie fuck-ups, you know, trying <laughs> to have gravitas, you know, and it, right. it never comes off that way. It's sort of a, like an inverse of a Dylan Goes Electric, I guess. Like Right, totally. They're, they're, it's the dead go acoustic. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Um, and the next song, we've talked about this before uh, on some of our other episodes beat it on down the line uh it's one of the really oldest... the only bob song in the uh set right yeah 
yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it's interesting because there there are um, some of the other shows from this tour. Bob is a little bit more present in these acoustic sets. Again, that Fillmore East show, Bob, I think there's a few more Bob songs. And also Bob is more active in the between song patter. Um, Especially like him and Jerry kind of have like a comedy routine going on, especially in that Fillmore East show, but also some of the other shows as well. Um, But yeah, this was really like his own, one of his only showcases really in this set. And, uh, and also, I think the only song that had been on a Grateful Dead album, though, actually, now oh, yeah. that I think of it, I know you, Ryder, is on the first album in like a very like sped up sort of garage punk version. Right. Uh, so that would be that would be the other song that people are familiar with also from if they had seen a dead show and seen a China writer before. But, yeah, it's like uh, this is a very, you know, un. Uh, unmerciful set for for dead newbies (laughs) like if you had studied up on their albums and showed up you would be scratching your head for at least the first couple hours of this very long show uh yeah they also do the like classic beat it on down the line trick where bob asks uh for a random number (laughs) before they start and that's how many beats they play before they beat (laughs) it on down the line somebody says eight this time so if you some some other good like slightly off mic banter that you can crank it up in here uh yeah i mean it's it's fine it's you know bob is uh you know doing his best to 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 keep up it's definitely a song that is you know a a, a tier below the things that are around it for sure yeah i mean we're used to this setup in in grateful dead sets like where there'll be like a heavy jerry song and then bob will come in and play a more upbeat party song like that's right you know that's a pattern we see time and again and really this is the only example of that in this acoustic set like there's a lot of um and, and i say this in the best possible way like there's a lot of dirgy jerry songs uh in mm-hmm. this set which are and they're all brilliant songs it's very soulful heavy jerry stuff and it's and I love Bob. This isn't a knock on Bob, but like part of the magic of this set is like how Jerry centric it is, uh, and because it, 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 it's super soulful stuff. And like you can hear that, especially on the next song, which is Black Peter. Of course, this is going to end up on Working Man's Dead. And mm-hmm. you and I were talking about this. I mean, I love this version, and I yeah. think I like it more than the studio version. Yeah. How do you this feel is the about definitive- it? It's the definitive Black Peter to me, I think. And, like, you know, the, you, you can always go on uh, the old Heady version website and find out what dead fan consensus is on the best version of a song. And I was surprised that this one was only number two. Like, the, there's a DeKalb 77 version, which tops it for people. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you talked about dirgy songs. This is definitely a dirgy song. And, it, you know, it's slow, it's bleak, and it's... Uh, you know, it's 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 not a rocker by any means, but man, I love it. And this is the way the song should be played. We just watched uh, the uh, Grateful Dead official shakedown stream of the 1993 show from Ohio that they showed the other night uh, a couple weeks ago now by the time this episode drops. But there's a Black Peter in that set, which was just like, you know, the like blues hammer version of black peter <laughs> and I, I absolutely hated it 
because I'd been listening to this version <laughs> like almost every day uh, for the week leading up to it. Uh, yeah, this is so good. Black Peter is like one of those songs that is probably nobody's favorite, favorite dead song and kind of went through a lot of strange incarnations over the dead's uh, run. Uh, but th this is really, yeah, the way it should be played. Like it's, it's got so much space. It's got such a great cherry vocal performance another song with great lyrics that really benefit from this stripped down presentation and yeah it's uh it's my go-to if i want to hear a black peter yeah i think that black peter is a song that uh it's weird because there's not a whole lot going on in the song but i feel like it it's easy to screw this song up uh where especially with the band if, if it's a full band version I just feel like it can really be a slog uh, pretty easily. And I think what makes this version so great is the fact that it is so stripped back. And it really feels like, I mean, there's other people playing on it, but it feels like Jerry playing it. And the intimacy of the performance, uh, I think, really drives it home. And it would, it, it, like you said, I think that this is the way to present this song. I, See add too much to it it almost like takes away the power but like if it's a jerry and if it's his voice and it's the words you know then it really comes off and uh yeah i i just think it's such a beautiful version there's also other versions that they played on this tour that i think are pretty good too and again i'll mention the fillmore east show for the millionth time they played in that <laughs> show too and that's a really good version and uh they also play the next song on this uh, set, which is Candyman. And this is an interesting choice because, you know, you, you alluded to this earlier that there's other versions of Candyman from this tour where they actually, like, get through the whole song. Because, like, this isn't a right. complete version of the song. Um, although I don't really mind it because I think part of the fun of these acoustic sets is the looseness of it. And, you know, the sort of, like, audio verite quality of it that, like, like I love the fact that, uh, you know, I said this earlier, that it, it, it doesn't seem like the dead is playing in a really large room when you listen to this. It really feels like you're in a living room with them, you know, although I mean, there was obviously a bigger space than that. Um, but um, that, 
That's part the of the way it was recorded too, like hearing right. like that soundboard and being so up close and only hearing the crowd between songs. Like, yeah, it's like they're singing right to you. But even like the quality of the performances too, there's a sort of like, un, it's, it's unassuming, you know, and it, it, it feels like um, very relaxed when you're hearing it. So like it, when you get a version like this Candyman where um, it doesn't totally come off, to me, it, it, it it's even if this like particular version, you, you could say it's not a great performance. I think it adds to the overall sort of feeling listening to this set of like, oh, this feels really informal and yeah. a really up close up close and personal, you know, uh, portrait of this band. Yeah, I mean, I've always wondered what like happened with this version because they had, you know, as you said, there's other versions on this tour that are complete, so they had clearly written the entire song. And it, I, you know, we mentioned that Friend of the Devil already sounds like fully realized and they know exactly how they're going to go into the studio and record it. And I wonder if they were still just trying to figure out if Candyman was a fast song or a slow song. And they play this one really fast and maybe realize like one chorus in that it's too fast and they should just drop right into a like truly fast song and play Cumberland Blues afterwards. Uh, but yeah, as you said, there's a really good version on the 515 show. There's also a really bad version on the 515 show because they play it in both the early and the late show. Uh, the first one I thought was really good. The second one is like too slow. So they're clearly like testing the testing this one out and futzing around with the tempo and figuring out where this song should be. And Candyman, I think we can agree, is got this like weird, dark, slithery feel to it in its lyrics that really benefit from being played at a nice slow speed and not this sort of upbeat bluegrassy version that they play right. here um but yeah it's fun to hear it as like a song that isn't totally uh figured out yet there's a great in that amazon documentary there's a really awesome footage of bob and jerry and phil like figuring out the harmonies for Candyman, and i'm not sure exactly when it's from i think it might be a little later after this and later in the early 70s but uh i like that sort of glimpse at the song as a work in progress and Candyman is like a perfect example of what you're talking about with hunter where it's like this sounds like a song that has existed forever and the Candyman is like this classic folklore character that you just didn't know existed until you heard this song. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it, it's it's just a great like murder ballad, right? And of course, the horror movie that came out twenty years after this movie. Candyman. Well, I'm always surprised. Yeah, that you know. So there's a new Candyman coming out, right? With, yes. Uh, by Jordan Peele, and I'm always surprised that they don't use this song, but like turn it into like the like cliched like kids spooky kids choir version right. <laughs> that every movie trailer does like this would work perfectly for like the new candy man to have spooky kids singing candy man really slow but uh it you know i guess they're going for a different vibe it doesn't really fit with the whole cabrini green thing that uh candy man draws upon i mean like be careful what you wish for because usually with that that they'll take some old song and make it sound like an evanescence song or something you know like they well, slow yeah, it down yeah. You know, like, no, I'm totally expected. I always expect that to happen, and I want to like hear that and laugh at it. But for some <laughs> reason, they they resist wisely, and uh, I don't know. I guess Jordan Peele is too smart for that. So, so the next song uh, is Cumberland Blues, which we talked about. This is another example of a song that moved from 
between acoustic and electric sets uh, on this tour. Of course, like the I feel like the the definitive version of this is from Europe '72. You know, like the start of that record. I always think of when I, when I think of Cumberland Blues, I think of that song. Uh, I think of that version. Um, and so this is you know obviously much different. It's it, it's uh, they're they're playing it acoustically. Um, and you know I think it's really I think it's a good version. You know, this is another song. This is a Garcia Hunter song. Uh, Phil Lesh is also uh, credited as a co-writer on this. Um, right. The the rare Garcia Lesh uh, Hunter byline. Are, are there other examples of that? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't know if like Lesh. Yeah, I don't know. Got in there or not? Um, I don't know. What's your take on Cumberland Blues? I lo- yeah, I love it. I mean, it's another song that. I would have mistaken for a traditional until you like actually read the liner notes and right. I was like this is a this is a great like vocal song for the dead and you know clearly the Europe 72 version is a little like polished up after the fact like a lot of songs on that record are but hearing like you know an unadorned version like this they still sound pretty good and I like how there is this sort of trade-off between Jerry and Bob in this song and I think Phil is singing his like classic Phil high harmonies on this song. And yeah, it's just a good, like sort of bluegrassy up-tempo version of this Grateful Dead folk rock thing that we've been talking about. And then we go into deep uh, Elam blues. Is it deep Elam, Elam blues? Elam, Elam? Elam. Elam. They sing it as Elam. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I mean, this is like when it starts to become like a little more electrified. And which is a pretty cool transition, yeah. like because like by the end, you, you, like you feel like the dead is starting to kind of come to life, you know. The the, the first like five six songs have a real again like campfire vibe, and uh, they're sort of easing into sounding more like the dead at this point. Um, I mean, I, I I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record. I mean, this is another awesome version though. I, I really like this version too. <laughs> yeah, Harper College, it's great. <laughs> Newsflash, yeah. I mean, Deep Ellen Blues, like, they also would, this is one that goes back to sort of the early 70s shows. It's on Bear's Choice, and it's a, you know, it's a traditional cover, but yeah. I I don't know. This is maybe my least favorite song in the acoustic set. I still think it's pretty good, but there's, you know, it's a, this is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, I want to say, like, sort of blues rock karaoke <laughs> feel to it um, we have two well, we have two like, blues it, songs in a row here two songs with blues in the title i know two songs with blues in the title yeah so and then after this they have you know another traditional like in cold jordan so it's you know now they're really like leaning into the roots thing hard uh for this part of the set which is you know it's fine but it yeah, not my not my favorite song in the set. Well, Cole Jordan is an interesting track just because they didn't play it very much. I mean, they played it yeah. once in 69 and they played it about a dozen times on this tour. And to once again reference the Fillmore East shows, like on the late show, they played this song last. It was like the instead of saying we instead of so, instead of playing we bid you good night, they played Cole Jordan essentially at the end of the show. Oh, cool. Um yeah. And it's an old gospel song, and so I appreciate it for that because it's a pretty rare song uh, that the Dead played, right. and they never played it again after this. Uh, but I agree. I mean, it's starting to. Um, it's like I almost wish, like, oh, there was another Garcia Hunter song here rather than traditional, just because I was I'm just so into uh, 
hearing the Garcia Hunter songs. And of course, we get one at the end of the set with Uncle John's band, uh, right. which we've been hearing lately on Dick's Picks albums towards the end of the second set, essentially. Um, but here it's still a new a new song, so it's not like this crowd-pleasing number, and it's interesting to hear it in a context like where people aren't automatically going crazy for it. Yeah. You know, because they don't know know the song. Mm -hmm. And it's really like the the peak of this phenomenon we're talking about, like the faux folk traditional Grateful Dead song. I mean, it just from lyrics to how it sounds, it's like the, it exactly fits this Campfire Dead vibe that you're talking about. The like, anybody can pick up a guitar and with a few open chords can learn how to play Uncle John's band and you can harmonize about it with, harmonize around it with your friends. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, I don't know, broken record again, but what a great song. This is a great version. They're a little out of tune at the end, but hey, it's the Grateful Dead. And what's the Grateful Dead without some, you know, vocal mishaps at some point over the course of a song. And yeah, I mean, it's like Deep Ellen Blues and Cold Jordan are a nice traditional interlude again, but I would have kind of liked it if they started off with a couple traditionals and then sort of segued into like, here's our take on all this traditional music and topped it off with Uncle John's band without this little diversion into actual tradition traditional music uh along the way but yeah it's it's great it's you know again alongside the black peter earlier in the set like this is uh about as good of an uncle john's band as you can reach for and again i mean you gotta admire uh the guts that they had to open a show with an acoustic set made up of songs that people didn't know you know, yeah. uh, and it must, it, I, and it, I'm speculating here, but I feel like that speaks to the confidence that they had in this material. I mean, they, they must have had a sense, like, oh, these, oh, these songs are fucking good. And like, even if people yeah. don't know them, uh, you know, they're going to go over pretty well. Like, they're going to love these songs, you know, after they hear them. Uh, so, I mean, you sp- you made a good point earlier about how, the rowdiness of the crowd was in part a reflection of, of just the rancor of the times and like how students, so there's a lot of upheaval on college campuses. I wonder to what degree too, that was just people that showed up wanting to party and like these guys yeah. were playing acoustic music and like, you know, they were maybe all juiced up, ready to go. And it was like this right. kind of mellow beginning. <laughs> Not what they expected. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they're dead delivered, man. So shut up, shut up and sit down, hippies. <laughs> Listen to these amazing songs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you chopped this disc out, and I mean, it's like maybe a top ten disc in the Dead catalog, right? Like if this oh, was yeah. just released as an album, like I would listen to this a lot, and you know, maybe more. You know, I would. You know, you put it on par with Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, at least where. It's not as polished, but it's it's got that that vibe in almost a more pure form. It's just you know one of the one of the great discs in all of the Grateful Dead's catalog. It's interesting that the Dead didn't go to this well more often, you know, playing more acoustic sets because they were really good at it, you know, and yeah. they had the material to put it off. And again, like I think of the Reckoning record, where like I remember before I was a Grateful Dead fan, like people would recommend that to me as like, oh, this is a good. Um, 
entry point. Because uh, they always say that about the Grateful Dead, that uh, like when you're trying to attract you know newbies into the fold, that you make the song argument first, you know, because people are afraid yeah. of the jams. So it's like, well, they write great songs. And so listen to Reckoning because you can get a taste of that. Um, and this seems like another example of that. Like, oh, yeah, these songs are amazing. And so if you're scared of jams, you can just listen to this acoustic set and be totally charmed by it. Yeah. And after this, for like the rest of the early 70s, it just got louder and louder instead of <laughs> like going with this acoustic sound. And maybe that has something to do with just logistics maybe it was hard to pull off this sort of acoustic set and the types of you know venues and sound systems they were playing in the early 70s but yeah it's surprising that like you get it in 1970 you get it in 1980 and then not really at all the rest of the dead's run like you think they would do it more often and i think you know jerry did a little bit of it on the side right um, he never liked to play totally solo but he would do like old and in the way shows that were acoustic or you would do sometimes some duo shows that were acoustic, but yeah, it's, uh, they were really, uh, sparing in how often they, they use this format. They, they would have done a great MTV unplugged, uh, in the nineties. <laughs> I'm surprised that never happened. Jerry with like the Eric Clapton haircut, you know, doing bossa nova <laughs> versions of maybe it's best that that didn't happen. Yeah. I just wonder like to what yeah. degree, I wonder to what degree the dead sometimes were, prisoners of like you know being a party band for people you know and, and like yeah. how you know there was maybe expectations that people would they want to go to the shows and they want to dance and they want to have a good time and like they don't want to see the band sitting down playing acoustic songs i i, I just wonder if, if maybe that limited them and and what if they wanted to do something a little bit more delicate or nuanced you know especially as they got more popular if it just made it more difficult to do that and they're like, well, you know, people don't want this. You know, they're going to yell at us anyway. So let's just, you know, play loud. That's what people want. That's true. It's a good point. I mean, I feel uh, like we've found the Deadheads will go along with almost anything that the Grateful Dead did. But <laughs> especially when they're playing stadiums, like there was just no way that they were going right. to do an acoustic set, right? Like, right, right. Yeah. Bossa Nova, Touch of Grey or no. <laughs> They wouldn't uh, have been able to pull that off. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go into the electric side here. Uh, disc two, we get started in the middle of St. Yeah. Stephen. Um, and I, like, how much do we lose? Do we lose like a verse or so? Yeah, it's uh, kind of like one verse and one chorus, right? But yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I kind of like it in a way. Like the. I don't know. I think the meat of St. Stephen is still there. Uh, like that sort of really like, you know, nose bleedingly psychic psych rock, like solo coming out of it is still present, but yeah, it's kind of funny that, yeah, we just drop right in. And, um, I mean, St. Stephen to me, like, wasn't this like fairly rare at this point? I mean, I, I feel like this became like kind of a white whale for people, at least later on in the seventies. Yeah, I don't think it's quite rare yet, but it's funny that you can hear them at one point in the acoustic set making fun of people shouting for St. Stephen. <laughs> I forget right. what song it is. Uh, but And that became sort of a running joke with the band where people were always yelling for St. Stephen. Like, you know, until Working Man's Dead and American Beauty come out, 
I think St. Stephen was probably like the free bird of Grateful Dead, like the song that <laughs> right. people would show up and yell for until they played it. So, uh, you know, it's on Live Dead, and I think that might be where people really took a liking to it. And it is like arguably one of their strongest early songs as far as like having a memorable melody and like nice, you know, loud dynamics and things. So I, I, I totally get it. But yeah, it's... uh starting to get to the point where I think they're a little sick of it and they're maybe right. playing it more out of obligation than, uh, you know, a desire to play it. They no longer do the very ornate St. Stephen, like William Tell bridge, the 11 suite that they were playing only a year ago. And that came out on live dead. So, uh, I think it's a little bit like we gotta, we gotta play the hit for people and then we'll get into the stuff we want. We're more interested in. So, yeah, this is a version of that maybe where they they come out hot on the electric set uh, and open up with St. Stephen. St. Stephen opener. Everybody lost their minds, I'm sure. And I have to say, again, to sound like a broken record in this episode, the May 15th show at the Fillmore, there is a complete St. Stephen in that show. So like, if you want the whole St. Stephen, you can listen to that show. You can turn um, to that. But yeah, you should just listen to Live Dead instead if you want the whole St. Stephen. That's the... Uh, <laughs> That's the St. Stephen to listen to. So, and it, it, you mentioned too, like how this was like like the free bird of like early dead. Um, <laughs> I guess along with like Dark Star. I mean, Dark Star would be like another like war horse for them uh, from that time. And it, it, again, like it's interesting going from that acoustic set to this electric set because, like, as you said earlier, you're really getting a preview of what the dead are going to become. Um, or at least like how their sets are going to look in that first set, all these new songs that are about to come in to their set list. And then these next two discs, the, uh, the electric set, it's like the songs that they were playing a lot in the sixties, uh, that, and many of which, have, you know, a lot of these songs are going to end up disappearing, um, from the sets within a couple years. Um, and it, just hearing that tension between where, where the dead is going and where they were, uh, is really interesting in the show because I mean yeah. obviously they were still tearing through, yeah, uh, you know these uh, these sixties uh, live vehicles. I mean we go from Saint Stephen into Cryptical, um, and then into drums. And I mean really, I mean the flow here, I mean it it feels like again like of a piece. Like it, like when I listen to it, sometimes it's hard to know like one song when one song is ending and the, and the next one is beginning. Yeah, it's interesting just for like housekeeping reasons that back on volume four, this was just tracked as that's it for the other one, like cryptical envelopment and drums and the other one. And then right. back into cryptical envelopment was just all included as one big half hour track on disc two of volume four, whereas now they're splitting it up into those parts. Uh, I'm not sure why that is or if it even is interesting to people, but it is like a thing that uh, has changed in the intervening years but yeah I, like i kind of like this saint stephen and the cryptical envelopment drop and it's you know another really good version of the song i don't this is one that i don't think really measures up to volume four i think that volume four version is just so good in all of its parts uh but you know it's it's it, it's it's cool and like it's got almost like like the other one is really intense as it was in this era of course and sort of unrelenting in how they're like tackle it 
but what really jumps out to me is when they go back into cryptical envelopment after the other one and it has this really long extended quiet section uh in the middle of the vocals that i don't think you get in a lot of versions um which is uh, to me a little bit of like here's the sparseness of the acoustic set bleeding into what the electric dead does like they're starting to sort of mix what they've learned from the earlier from from the more like stripped down folkier material into the older like maximalist really loud psychedelic rock material and i i kind of like how that plays out uh in this version of it yeah it's interesting listening to this electric set and comparing it even to dick's picks four because i think four is obviously the natural comparison to make to eight because they're so close to each other um and also just listening to other shows from this tour and like how what you said is right how i mean the electric sets that the dead played in the 60s um i mean are so supercharged they're so energetic they're really going for it like and it's it, it, it's striking because like I, I i you know my sweet spot for the dead is like the 70s that's what i know the most i i like the 60s that I, I haven't listened to that quite as much just because for me the lack of variety in set lists in the 60s is is always a, a bit of a, an impediment, even with all the improvisation going on. You know, the songs aren't necessarily all there in the 60s in the way that they are in the 70s. Um, but the energy that comes through in the playing, um, you know, is it, so strong and so vital. But as you said, you're starting to hear a little bit more nuance and and a little bit more patience maybe in the way that they're mm-hmm. you know playing in these sets where it's not all just pedal to the metal <laughs> all the time as thrilling as that is right um it can be a bit wearying um and uh i think we're going to hear that uh we're going to hear other examples of that as we get deeper into this set um uh, but yeah uh, right i agree i mean i don't think that this other one can compare to uh Dix picks four. I mean, the four version has the advantage of being in the middle of that great progression where you have the dark star on one end and you have the love light on the other end. And I, I just right. feel like the way those fit together uh, is so magical. And uh, it, it brings out something in the other one that this one doesn't have just because of the context of right. it. You know, it doesn't have that great surrounding. I got to be Having honest, too, that, it's a, it, like one thing. It, it's that, a great version, though. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great version. But uh, you mentioned earlier that like the mono uh, quality for the electric set didn't really bother you much. Like, I think maybe I've just been spoiled by listening to all these great dicks picks up to this point. And I do feel like the electric set feels a little flat due to the fact that it's presented in mono. And like, you know, especially going back to volume four, we have this great stereo bear recording of that's it for the other one and you have all the interplay between the different parts of the band nice and stereo separated with all this like beautiful space that you can create with like a a stereo mix uh and you know to me this this one just doesn't quite spark as much and i think some of that has to do with the fact that you just can't mix as much with a mono recording like there's only so much you can do and it it just feels a little more uh yeah, flat, I guess, 
is, is is the right word for it. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I didn't get that as much. I listened to this show on headphones, and I also listened to it in my uh, in my van because I have the CD. That's, like, one of the great things about having CDs. I have the CD player in the van. You can listen to it with the windows down. And I, I mean, especially in the van, I thought it sounded great. Like, I, I, I was yeah. really into it. Um, yeah, it doesn't sound as good as I feel as like four. that's an unfair advantage if you have a, you have a van to listen to <laughs> Hey man, I got my hippie. I got my hippie van. I'm cruising around. This is right, the jam yeah. van. What, what what do you have painted on the side of your van, Steve? <laughs> it's a mural of Jerry's head in a cloud, and uh, he's uh, <laughs> uh, and he he has like the body of a lion, and uh, yeah. it's oh, Jerry's you mean, head. You mean Jerome? Jerome's head? <laughs> Jerome's head. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah, it doesn't sound as good as the bear tape, obviously, from four or or some of the yeah. Betty boards that we've been treated to. Like I, I remember three sounding really great too. I mean, that might be the best sounding one for me. Yeah, three, like three. Just well, sounds... and even coming off of seven, seven sounds amazing too. Seven like, sounds great. They, for all the like uh, caveats that were on these Dix Picks releases, they sound so amazing. And like I, you know, as I said, I appreciate the messiness of volume eight and that they were you know willing to put it out audio boards and all but uh they're they're this is like a this is definitely a track where i miss being able to hear everything clearly differentiated in the mix instead of sort of bleeding together like you are you know you hear more often on tapes or yeah you know archive.org recordings yeah if you, i mean you know because we're nitpicking here because we're comparing against the best of the best and so if you're gonna nitpick exactly. there's there's some there's some uh nits you can pick but otherwise i mean it's obviously great um right C- cosmic charlie comes next and i mean this sounds like and this is on oxo moxo this song and i mean this sounds like um i like this song it's a fun song it definitely sounds like a different era of the dead that is maybe starting to already seem anachronistic for them, you know, especially after hearing those great early songs, uh, yeah, in the acoustic set, you feel like, okay, this is, this is fun, but this is the past and they're going to be moving right. past this pretty soon. Yeah. This is a long run of songs that are really fussy in that early dead songwriting way, which is really jarring coming on the heels of that acoustic set. And, you know, you can overlook it a little bit in sort of classic great dead songs like St. Stephen and the other one, but Cosmic Charlie, I like it too. It's like a fun novelty to have and you're not going to hear it very often in dead shows, but it really stands out as a song that doesn't quite work on the level that, a lot of the acoustic stuff did or like Casey Jones is the next song and Casey Jones sounds like such a streamlined, amazing, like quality piece of songwriting after Cosmic Charlie, which is kind of fun at the start and then just kind of goes on and on and has some weird parts and some weird lyrics and a lot of words. And I don't know, it doesn't totally work for me. It reminds me of Mason's children, which kind of fits the same role on volume four where, right here's this song that only existed for a couple of years in dead history. And it's, it's fun to hear it, but definitely not of the same vintage as some of the other newer songs on these sets. Yeah. I mean, like if the dead hadn't progressed beyond this kind of song, they would have faded pretty quick. Like after yeah. this, uh, you know, after the dawn of the seventies, you know, like the, the, the fact that they were able to step up 
and become a different kind of band, uh, you know, which they were in the process of doing right now. It's why they went the distance and didn't and, mm-hmm. and weren't just like a '60s band, you know, that people would look back on as like a, a right. as like a curio. Uh, you mentioned Casey Jones coming up next, and yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this as I was listening to this record. I, I feel like this is like one of the first Dead songs I ever heard. And, and and I remember it standing out in my brain because cocaine is in the chorus, and um, <laughs> and, and I feel like I read an interview once where like they even joked about how this song helped popularize cocaine because <laughs> just because the chorus is so catchy and it sounds so yeah. awesome like riding that train high on cocaine you know it just sounds <laughs> like oh it's just sounds so awesome it's like oh, yeah I want right. I want to do I want to do cocaine now um, but. Yeah, I mean, this was a song. It also was in the um, Dick's Picks Volume Four. I mentioned too that they played the ballad of Casey Jones, which I'm not. Yeah, th- this is something we should have done in our research. I don't know if you looked into this. I don't know what the relationship is exactly between the ballad of Casey Jones, which I believe is a folk standard, and yeah, Casey Jones. I think Jones. it's on the American Anthology. Okay, yeah. and I mean, obviously, they were aware of that song and it inspired their own Casey Jones. Um. But as you said, I mean, this is just such a sharp, polished song that also just seems like it came out of the ground, you know, right? And uh, that existed long before the dead, but somehow it didn't. Somehow Garcia Hunter invented this song out of out, right. of, out, yeah, of, out of that raw material of the folk standard. I think it's similar to like uh, Sugary, which. Is a is a dead original, but is heavily based on an older song right. called "Shake It Sugary." And the, uh, Stagger Lee, I believe, they also claim is a Garcia Hunter original, even though there's a bunch of songs called Stagger Lee in the past that they sort of based it on. So, you know, in the same way that they were really good at writing songs, it sounded like they were centuries old. They also were not above sort of borrowing folk tales from the past and rewriting them slightly. Right. Casey Jones, I think, is a, is a lot different from the ballad of Casey Jones, but Casey Jones is sort of like a Paul Bunyan-y type folk tale, folk character that people would have like drawn upon and sung about for decades and decades of folk songs. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like... The volume four version is so good because they like have that great drop after the Zachary intro into it. And this version is equally good, I think. It just doesn't quite have the like punch of that post intro drop. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean they're they're like just killing it at this point. It's funny in the the liner notes that review that's in the liner notes. It's referred to as the train song. Right. Uh, because Working Man's Dead still hadn't come out, so they didn't know what this song was, but it clearly was memorable to people in the audience and i mean it's kind of insane that like casey jones wasn't a huge hit uh in the way that touch of gray would be in the next decade uh and obviously casey jones is i think one of the most recognizable dead songs to this day and you'll hear it on classic rock but uh it's like such a perfect song for their sound at this time and it seems like it's very much in the zeitgeist of what we were talking about with 1970 rock but it never really seemed to catch fire. Like, I don't know where it peaked on the charts, if it even made the charts, but it's, you can tell that it's like the single that they are pushing at this stage. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it, it never really quite got there as like a, like a hit. 
It's, it's, I mean, and maybe because of the drug reference being so like out front, I don't know if that uh, prevented. Maybe they couldn't play it on the radio because yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. I, maybe like I could imagine it not being on AM radio because of that. It was, it was probably like on FM, progressive rock, you know, album oriented right. radio, but you know, not on AM pop radio. I mean, yeah, you mentioned like obviously they were lifting, uh, uh, you know, some you know like the the themes and like some of the lyrics like from you know the old folk standard but i think what really what separates it what makes it such a quintessential dead song is like how hard it swings you know yeah and and it's one of those songs that like to me it's like this is the dead kind of like stepping up to the rolling stones like it kind of has like a stonesy vibe in terms of just being able to like groove hard in like a like a like a real rock and roll type way in a way that like I don't think the dead often went to that place, you know, like they, I mean, they obviously the dead rocks, but like they didn't like rock in that sort of straightforward groove kind of way. They were more eccentric, you know, but this one is like pretty straight ahead and like you hear it and it just connects and it's a great song. We both love Casey Jones. Absolutely. A controversial take yeah. here on 36 from the vault. Yeah, look, <laughs> look it up, deadheads. Casey Jones. It's a good song, man. Check it out. Good deep cut. Um, so this next song, it, it's a surprise to me because, like, you know, Good Lovin' is a song that appears throughout dead history. And I have to admit, I yeah. often kind of roll my eyes when I see Good Lovin'. I, I'm rarely excited to see right. a Good Lovin' in the set. I actually really like this version, and they actually jam it out really well. And it's like a little bit of good loving, and then there's like a long instrumental part after that, which really has nothing to do with good loving and takes it off into a whole other realm. Um, right. And I love it. I love it. I actually I think it comes off great. Uh, yeah. I'm... This is my favorite song of the electric set i gotta say which wow I, I i also would not have ever anticipated going in i mean i've heard this show a lot so i kind of knew it was coming but yeah good lovin is gonna show up a lot in dead history and when it gets handed off from pig pen to bob it gets real rough to listen to i think <laughs> <laughs> i mean bob it is a classic showcase for Bob Hamminess uh, later on in the 70s and throughout the 80s and 90s. But uh, yeah, it's funny how the dead for the rest of the show almost turn into like a cover band <laughs> and like and, and almost like in a very bar bandy sort of way. Like they're playing all songs uh, for the next three songs, at least on this set that are you know, fairly recent covers like Good Lovin' came out in 66, uh, Man's Man's World coming out in 66, uh, Dancing in the Streets is also like 66, 67. So it's sort of strange when we've been talking about, you know, how confident they are in their originals uh, that they sort of give in to this temptation to become a party band for the for the rest of this set almost. Uh, but yeah, this version, as you say, is it's great. It's like, Finally, Pigpen gets to come out and sing a song. I feel a little bad for Pigpen that, you know, it's, what is it, midnight at this point, and Pigpen hasn't got a chance to to do a, a lead vocal yet. Uh, but he comes out and he does Good Lovin', and that part is fine. It's Good Lovin'. It's like, you know, Mustang Sally. It's like the kind of song that any band of this era would have been able to play at the drop of a hat. Uh, and then there's, like, the drum break, which you got in a lot of Good Lovin's at this time, and it's, you know... 
a, a few minutes of, of drum duet. Uh, but then when they come back out of that, it's this great, really like snaky jam that sounds to me a lot like the 11. Right. Uh, even though it's not in like a, you know, really weird proggy time like the 11 is, but it has that same intensity that the 11 would give you in a dead show previously. Uh, yeah, it's just really good. There's like a stretch of six or seven minutes in the middle that I find to be the most like thrilling electric part of this show, frankly. Uh, and it, yeah, it really jumped out of nowhere and surprised me. but I really liked it a lot. And yet, I mean, it's really like the good loving part of this, because like it's a 15 minute track. I mean, the good loving part of it is only about four or five minutes. And then the rest of it is this yeah, awesome jam, which is really, it's uh, laying the groundwork for what's going to happen on the third disc. Um, because this, to me, the third disc is like the meat of, uh, certainly of the electric set. I mean, obviously the acoustic set is its own thing and that's great. Um, but I, I know you just said you like good loving the most. I mean, my my highlights of the electric set are coming up on the third disc. Uh, one of those highlights, however, is not "It's a Man's World" uh, <laughs> coming up. And I have to say, well, before we get into "Man's Man World," just uh, just a note that this is where the cold rain and oh, snow yes. would have come yes. if if they had released the complete show. I think it's worth listening to the cold rain and snow on archive, or if you have like the vinyl reissue somehow. Because it is just a classic example of how bad a dead show can go, even in the middle of 
you know, one of the classic dead shows of all time <laughs> because they start playing Cold Rain and Snow. It already, it, like, from the start, it sounds, like, too slow for the era for, like, how they would normally play this song. And then before they get into singing it, uh, Jerry literally tunes his guitar in the middle of the intro, like, while the rest of the band is playing the Cold Rain and Snow right. chords. You can hear him just be like, oh, man, I'm way out of tune. I just got to tune this up. Uh, and then it doesn't really get much better from yeah, that it's, so, it's rough uh, it's rough yeah i can see i can see why they left it off it may have been also been like a cd timing issue i don't know for sure but yeah if you were going to cut a song from the electric set that's uh that's the one to cut well, it's, something that was too bad even for uh this warts and all release and it's odd too because it comes in the middle of like uh there's about like i guess five songs in a row here that are all like 10 minutes plus and then you have like a cold rain and snow which <laughs> yeah. kind of sucks in the middle yeah it's easy to get rid of that one um so anyway yeah. we go into it's a man's world at the top of the third disc and uh, i did listen to this um although it took this is i'm just gonna say I, this this is my bathroom break song i always skip this song when i listen to this album uh, usually I'll listen, sometimes I'll, I'll listen to the beginning of it and then I'll hear Pigpen do like his James Brown impression and I'm like, I'm out. I, I usually bail right after that. I, for the purposes of this episode, I listen to the full version and you know, there's some cool Jerry guitar stuff. Um, but I don't know, two Pigpen songs in a row. It, 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 it's a little much for me. I like Pigpen when he does, I, I could take him on Love Light he was doing hard to handle on this tour, which I like that much more as like a, I guess, soul classic uh, showcase for Pigpen uh, than uh, than it's a man's world. Um, just Pigpen doing James Brown, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's, and also, there's so much good stuff after this. I just get impatient, and I'm like, I'm not gonna sit through ten minutes of this. I want to get to the next right. three tracks yeah i mean it like the dead i feel like we're pretty good at choosing which covers suited their style by this point and i think that's true for good loving and for the next song dancing in the streets and i mean cold rain and snow is a cover morning dew is a cover some of the stuff in the acoustic set was a cover um it's a man's 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 world is totally the wrong choice for the grateful dead to be playing i mean it's like you think about everything that's great about james brown and his band and it's like very you know minimalist and you know getting a lot out of a little and you know a very show-stopping vocal performance uh all of those things are not what the grateful dead are good at that is not their strengths (laughs) at any point in the grateful dead's history uh and you know if Pigpen wanted to sing this fine and you know give Pigpen the showcases that he wants in this era because he doesn't seemingly have a lot to do Um, but I mean this version shows you how awkward a fit this song was for the Grateful Dead and yeah I agree with you there's like some really there's some interesting Jerry stuff going on in the you know extended improvisational part of it uh he can you know it's got this sort of sinister creepy vibe to it that the grateful dead didn't do a whole lot in this era so that's kind of interesting to hear them try and tackle that but 
uh, it's interesting to hear, I would say, once or twice. Uh, but after that, yeah, a, a, a skippable track on a set that has a lot of a lot of other stuff going yeah on. i mean I, I just feel like i mean it's not bad I, I just feel like there's so much good around it that i i just don't have a lot of patience for it you know I, when we were talking when you were talking about james brown i, I was just thinking like it, it might have been cool to hear the dead do something like cold sweat or like one of the more like kind of instrumental workouts that james brown did you know like where because like it's a man's world is like a ballad essentially and like you said, it's it's based on being, you know, fairly minimal, and it's it's really centered on James Brown's vocal. But he also had a lot of songs where it's just long instrumental tracks, and I feel like oh, maybe the Dead should have done something like that, where they could have just grooved out right. a little bit. But again, like you know, it is a funny comparison. James Brown to the Grateful Dead. James Brown being, you know, a notorious perfectionist about you know he was all about precision you know, hitting everything at right. the exact right point, which is obviously not what the dead do. Um, well, and particularly uh, two drummer dead. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Could, could two drummer dead, even at the, you know, the good two drummer dead era of the early days, ever hit, like, the snare at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> like, if James Brown would have fired the whole band, like, three notes in oh, this man. version, I feel like. He yeah, or, or, or just, like, find, find them, like, you know, $10,000 a show. <laughs> Oh, that's true. Find um, them into poverty. Yeah. So, uh, the I, I I guess our tour of like '60s oldies continues with the next track, "Dancing in the Streets," um, and uh, you know I've said this before because "Dancing in the Streets," I think this is the third time it's come up, uh, so far in Dick's picks. I know it was in three, it was in four, and it was in this one. Has it been, was there another instance? I think those are the the three so far. I don't think no, um, yeah, that's right. And again, I'm always amazed. This is another song where I, sometimes I see it in a set list, and I, you know, I might groan a little bit <laughs> thinking about the dead doing it. But then they always do it really well, um, and they always take it to interesting yeah. places. And, and in this particular version, um, we see a recurrence of the tighten up jam which we remember from Dick's Picks Volume 2. It showed up in the Dark Star that a lot of people love. And you and I like, not as although I feel like our listeners really love that version. Um, But if you like that jam, you're going to like this version because it it recurs. And uh, they were really going to that well quite often at this time. Um, If you go... Basically, if you just look up, if you Google Grateful Dead Tighten Up Jam, you'll find an article on archive.org, which is really great. It's called Guide to the Tighten Up Jam, and it just lists like all every instance where the dead played a song and they used that motif. And uh, they use it several times uh, during this uh, May 1970 tour. Uh, and they use it in this version, and it sounds great. And I love this version of Dancing in the Streets. Yeah, in a way, I feel like the Tighten Up Jam almost suits Dancing in the Streets more so than Dark Star. Where right, Dark, I agree. Dark Star, you know, you're going off on this crazy cosmic voyage, uh, and occasionally they decide to pepper it with a Tighten Up Jam to give it a little danceability. Uh, but Dancing in the Streets, you can just roll right into it, you know, very smoothly, which they do here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like it's the same as Good Lovin', where you're like, man, this is some 
classic wedding band material <laughs> that they're <laughs> that they're busting out uh and you don't expect much from it and then it clobbers you over the head with like a really deep like improvisational uh jam and i like this one too because even beyond the tighten up jam it gets into some like weird dark territory as well later on in the song and uh yeah it's just a really good version and i'm i'm with you where it's like this is not a song that on paper should be good, but, uh, you know, th- across all eras of the dead, it really delivers, uh, you know, in a way that can uh, surprise you, come out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, like the Dick's Picks Volume 3 version where it's, you know, Bob and Donna doing, like, the disco dancing yeah. in the streets, which is great. You know, like, they, they were yeah. able to apply that to every era of the dead and update it in surprising ways and it's like why does this song work so well <laughs> you know because it, it does seem like on paper it seems like a little like oh hacky you know cover band type stuff but yeah they, they really take it to a cool places in, in in different ways yeah for a lot of the reasons that we said the james brown cover was a bad idea you would think would also apply here but uh maybe the fact that yeah, it's not but... a ballad helps like it is you know an up-tempo party song but yeah, I mean it's uh you know the, the it's a Marvin Gaye original that the dead make their own. So, you know, kudos to them. Uh I do want to shout out how creepy Phil is at after the end of the song cuz we've talked a lot about Phil being the cop, Phil being the dad, Phil being, you know, whatever authority figure you want. For some reason Phil decides it's okay to like single out a couple that were dancing uh lasciviously near the stage. <laughs> and says everybody should be like that couple and then says i want you all to feel each other for about 10 minutes because they're about to take a set break which is there's a lot of good banter in this show and that is you know definitely uh the grossest (laughs) of all the banter so yeah phil after dark (laughs) exactly after dark baby r-rated phil (laughs) so from there we go and this is i guess the final set of the uh, of the night it's, yeah. it, it starts with morning dew and we've had a lot of conversations about like morning dew being a traditional um set to closer or at least playing towards the end of the set obviously a very dramatic set piece culminates with like a very fiery guitar workout from jerry this version is no exception yeah i mean i Look, Morning Dew is great, <laughs> especially in this era of uh, of the Dead. Um, I feel like it, it pretty. It, I feel like it delivers pretty consistently. I I really love the dynamics of this version. It gets pretty quiet, um, you know, in the middle of the song, and then just explodes um, at the end. Um, and I gotta say, you know, we've had this conversation about you know songs that traditionally go in that slot uh in in dead shows where it's like morning dew or stella blue i'm sorry morning dew stella blue or or wharf rat and i'm 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 still like a big stella blue person but man like listening to some of these like uh, morning dews that we've had like the last two uh because it was a great one in dick's pick seven as well it's like man okay i i i'm finding it really hard to argue against morning dew as being like is anything being better than that is like the show-stopping ballad that has a great guitar solo at the end. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and this version's great. Yeah, the only argument I have is that it doesn't fully feel of a piece with Stella Blue or Warfrat. 
And I think it just maybe has to do with how early on they were playing this song where they were playing it in the late 60s when they were still sort of a raw, noisier band. And even though it it's always been a ballad because it is, again, another cover of like a post-apocalyptic folk song, uh, but it has this sort of nasty edge to it, I feel like sometimes, or like more of a rawness than Stella Blue right. or Warfrat, which are more stately ballads in a lot of ways. Uh, and this is right. that, that kind of version where it gets sort of raw and wobbly along the way. And I really like that about it. Like I and Morning Dew was kind of retrofitted to fit this sort of ballad slot, I think, as the dead went on, but you have these early versions which have so much drama and you know, this like darkness to them that, you know, really makes them fly. And yeah, this is a great version and it only suffers from the fact that it's placed very strangely, I think, in this show. Right. I mean, I, I don't know why they took a set break because they come back and they only play really only two songs and then we bid you good night, which is sort of a, you know, benediction at the end of a dead show. Uh and but opening a set with Morning Dew seems really strange to me. If they had even flipped it with Viola Lee Blues, it would make a little more sense to me. But you know, I like it and you know, when you when it blurs into a, a disc like this and comes on the heels of dancing, it works just fine. But sort of a strange place to slot it, I think. And that that's, uh, throws me a little bit. Yeah, you. I mean, I don't want to say they threw it away because it sounds great. But, you know, it's such a powerful, dramatic uh, song that you feel like other... Oh, this should be how you send people out. Like you don't want to like give it away too early. You know, you want people, you want, yeah. you want to kind of like leave people with that. Um, the one thing I'll say about Stella Blue is that I think at its best, it has the same tension and energy that Morning Dew does. And I'm thinking of that version from Dick's Picks uh, 6 uh, yeah. from, for the 83 show, where I, I think that has like a raw edge to it because i think you're right i think stella blue can be a little sleepy uh and it's because that song came along later and it you know when the dead were mellower and they didn't have the energy that they had when morning dew was like really like one of the big show stopping ballads that they played so i think you're right there but i i do think stella blue at its best um does have that energy i just feel like it seems like and maybe this is recency bias. It just seems like Morning Dew hits the mark more often. <laughs> like, it just seems yeah. so reliable, especially at this time in the band's history. Um, the next song, uh, for me, is my favorite song of the of the electric set. And that's uh, Viola Lee Blues. And this is an interesting song. This was this was a song, it was on, this is the first appearance, I think, on a Dick's Picks so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a song, it was on the first, uh, Grateful Dead record, and it was really like that, like one of their first sort of jam vehicles. Like it, it was you know even before Dark Star, you know this was like one of the early like kind of workout songs, and, and I know like um, this song reappears on uh, Dick's Picks Twenty Two, uh, which is a show from nineteen sixty eight. It's actually in a bowling alley uh, in, in Florida, <laughs> and I think that's the earliest Dick's Pick show. I, I don't think there's a show before 68. Huh. 
in, in Dick's picks. I could yeah. be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's the earliest. And like in that show, uh, Viola Lee Blues, I think it's like, like Dark Star's in that show, but it's like not very long. Like, uh, but the Viola Lee Blues is like about 20 minutes long. Um, yeah. and it's interesting listening to that and, uh, that version from 68 and this version from 70. Cause like even in that two year span, that thing that we were talking about earlier about the dead starting to become a little bit more nuanced and not quite as like supercharged as they were even in the sixties. I think you can hear that in this version. Like it's a little bit more patient. It's not quite as hammering you on the head as the 68 version. And when I say that, I love the 68 version from, and that's a great Dick's picks by the way. Uh, 22 is awesome. Um, but, um, yeah, I love, I, I love this jam. I love to, you know, we talked about this in, uh, Dick's Picks 4, um, you know, there's the feedback track on, on that one, and we don't get that on 8, but we do get a feedback section towards the end of this right. jam, and I, I'm always excited to hear The Grateful Dead turn into Sonic Youth, you know, like, we can get a good <laughs> feedback track. And just the way that they right. do it on this song, where it just turns into feedback at the end, and and they don't really do that on the '68 version, the the one from 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 Dick's Twenty Two, um, like they do here. Um, and I don't know, I just I I love how dirty this sounds, like how energetic it is, yeah. and I love the feedback section. I mean, this it, this is my favorite uh, number in the electric set. I've always been like fascinated by the fact that when the dead started out, they were sort of like a band that could have been on nuggets. Like a lot of their really right. early stuff is this like garage proto punk, like 
loud, angry, like music that is not at all what you would associate with the Grateful Dead. Uh, if you only knew, you know, basically the last 25 to 28 years of their <laughs> existence. Um, but Viola Lee Blues is kind of cool because it like straddles both eras because it, it is like that raw early Nuggets Grateful Dead, but stretched out to the length of a Dark Star or the other one or any of their other like later on playing in the band type improvisational vehicles and it like it, it's not a, like I appreciate it but it, it's not my favorite just because I do think it is kind of one-dimensional in that it's like a very intense long like uh you know sort of uh like freak out jam that doesn't really go into a lot of different spaces like I think the I actually think the 68 one gets into like travels a lot more ground than this one does. Like this one reminds me a lot of the like sort of not a f not fade aways we've heard in previous Dix Picks volumes, where it's just super intense for twenty minutes long, and it doesn't really tell a story or have a narrative. It's just like you sort of euphoric, delirious Grateful Dead, uh, moving as a unit, soloing from Jerry, right? Uh, really creating this sort of you know, just like feverish freak out vibe. Uh, but, you know, I like it. I mean, it it reminds me, you know, of, you know, for like a more re recent touch point, like the OCs or a band like that, that can just like create these really like sort of aggro, like groove based jams, uh, but stretched out over a longer period of time. And, you know, like I said, I already said I called my shot. That the Good Lovin' is my favorite on this set. And the Violi Blues doesn't quite reach that for me, but it's a fun little blast of energy at the end. And I almost wish, you know, like I said, the, the Viola Lee and the Dew were flipped because you get this really intense 20 minutes and it would be nice to have a little more of a landing pad than what you actually get on this set. Yeah, I mean... I agree with everything you said. I think I think there's a reason, there's a very obvious reason like why this song essentially like left the the dead sets. I think after 1970, I don't think that they played it really all that much or maybe at all after 70 because as you said there's not a whole lot you can do with this song. It's essentially a groove piece. And you know, you can't have a narrative. You can't take it to different places. Um but I I love it as a snapshot of like where the dead, I guess we're in the sixties and we're about to exit, but they could still do really well at this time. Um, just because the dead are never going to rock this hard really after this, like this is such yeah. a unique thing of this period. And, you know, you mentioned the OCs and I, I mentioned Sonic Youth. It also was making me think of like live at Leeds, you know, to reference what we were talking earlier you know, about the who record, um, like the My Generation Jam, like that kind of stuff, like where uh, it's just pedal to the metal, like like basically like hard rock type stuff. Um, pretty riffy, pretty groove-centric. Um, right. Which, again, are not things that we associate with the Grateful Dead. And I really like that because it's it's a unique flavor of this era, and it's a unique flavor of this record. And it's like, well, if I want to hear the dead do that, I know I can go to this record and hear that. Um, 
Whereas like the more exploratory stuff, it's I think ultimately more fulfilling and more interesting. But there's more examples of that. You know, we, there's lots of great dead jams like this, but like this really kind of pulverizing rock that they're able to conjure on this, it's pretty unique and it it's uh it kind of blew me away like how well they could do that, you know. Uh, so I was pretty knocked out by it. Um, we end with "We Bid You Good Night," and a pretty long version of this song. Yeah. Usually, and uh, it, it occurred to me too that this is the most fish-like uh, Grateful Dead song. I feel like this is something <laughs> that, like, because we have to bring fish into it at some point. But I feel like this is something that, like, you know like this sort of number or something it's the kind of thing that fish does it's like a little more it's kind of like a you know and i and i love that they did this at this time this was always such a staple of their shows especially at this time and i feel like they brought it back more like in the 80s maybe in 90s because i I feel like as we get into the 70s yeah like you know as as we get deeper into the 70s they they stopped doing this but it's, it's kind of like a whimsical thing you know it's a little more whimsical i think than the dead are typically um and uh but yeah i, I really liked this version of it this might be my favorite we bid you good night as weird as it is to like rank <laughs> that track uh, right what does heady version really, say about it? i bid you good night <laughs> but it's really sweet i really liked it and then of course you have the great sam cutler thing at the end which you alluded to where he says right. the grateful dead are very tired and you feel like, yeah, they should be. They, you know, they they've done a good job on this record. They deserve <laughs> a break. Yeah, exactly. Like it, yeah, it's nice, and it feels like they cycle through the vocals a couple extra times at the end. Like they don't quite want to end this show. And I, I don't know if the weird short set had something to do with like they were closer to curfew than they thought they would be, and. They thought they had more time to play maybe a Dark Star or something in this set, but somebody on the side of the stage was tapping their watch and saying, you got to you gotta close this out. Or maybe it was Sam Cutler saying, we got to drive to Connecticut and you got to close this out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, any set from this time that wraps up in We Bid You Goodnight is just great because you have all these psychedelic freakouts and weird improvisational voyages and you know, sometimes ill-advised covers. <laughs> and then it all comes around full circle to, you know, sort of a almost like a hymn that they're just singing unaccompanied at the end. And yeah, it's really nice and just a nice way to go out. Uh, I like the idea of them ending with Cole Jordan too. Like that's a cool twist on this well, era. Uh, I got... I gotta say, man, that Fillmore. I I, I feel like I've <laughs> talked about that Fillmore East show as much as this, I, I've heard good things Harper about College. the Fillmore East show on May fifteenth, nineteen seventy. Uh, maybe people want I to got, check that out. I gotta say, those shows are really good. I like those shows a lot. I I, I don't, and I I'd love to hear. You know, we'll have to get an expert to explain like what the availability of tapes were. My, I yeah. wonder if maybe those shows just weren't circulating, and because uh, I feel like if. Because to me, what's interesting about those Phil Marie shows too is just the com- the, the like the point to point comparison with the February shows. It's like the same yeah. venue, like three months and a day later, uh, yeah. and it, just the comparison there. It's like so natural. Maybe it was just like, well, we don't want to do another Phil Maurice show. You know, we want to do something. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting thing, but Harper College is obviously great. You know, we 
and I feel like the comparison here, and we we've done it throughout this episode, but like Dix Eight versus Dix Four, um, because I feel like those are, I think we'd probably agree those are uh, for sure among the best, if not the two best shows. I mean, I really like Seven, two so far, and I would have three right. in that conversation. And I, and one is a sentimental favorite for me, but if we're going purely for the show. I mean, I'm a little wary of my own recency bias here. I don't know if I'm just thinking seven because we just did it, but I mean, I really loved seven. I really love seven a lot. Um, right. But I don't know. I mean, because you said at the top that like eight would be the one that you would listen to if you just had to pick one. Right. But it also sounds like you think four is probably better overall. Yeah, I think I'm still leaning four, and I think it has like it's very close because I love the acoustic set on this one. And I love the variety that adds. But I really do think that the electric set on this one, whether it's due to the mono presentation or the performance itself, it doesn't have like a totally transcendent jam, I feel like, in the electric set. Right. Whereas Volume 4 has pretty much three back to back to back <laughs> that right, I could right. just live in forever and listen to a million times and hear something new every time. I feel like there's not a track on this one that has that quality. And so if I'm going with which one I prefer, I think I still got to go Volume 4, but I almost feel like if I had to listen to one, I, I still stand by if I have to listen to one you know, every day for the rest of my life, I might go with this one just because it offers a little more variety. It seems like the ideal Frankenstein is to take the acoustic set from eight and that 90 minute block from four. Right. And create a Voltron of like Grateful Dead greatness. <laughs> yeah. You know, just from the first just eight volumes. Peak 1970 dead right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, although again, seven for me, is really good in three, you know, from 77. I mean, like those, those four, I think are, you know, if we had to pick the top four from the first eight we've done, those seem like the choices. Wouldn't you say? Those are standing out, I think. Yeah. And Hey man, Um, Dick's picks. That's a good, Dick's picks. A good, good series of live albums. Somebody should do a podcast about those. Cause man, there's a lot to talk about. One album that I feel like is not going to compete is our next volume, <laughs> Dix Picks 9. <laughs> wow. Wow. Calling your shot. I don't know. Well, I haven't even listened to it yet, so don't, I know, uh, don't well, prejudice me here. Hey, man. I Look, I, I, I've, I've heard 9 many times. I actually <laughs> really like 9. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've talked about Whiplash here going yeah. from era to era. Uh, we're not... We're going. We're slingshotting past the Brent era, and we're going into the Bruce and Vince era. And I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, I love I love Bruce Hornsby in the Dead, so I'm excited to go into the Bruce zone. And Vince, uh, you know, Vince is an unsung guy. He yeah. has a tragic story, you know, that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, For sure. But um, it's going to be much different than this show. I could say you haven't heard it yet, but yeah, I I can def- definitely assure you that uh, it's going to be much different and even much different than uh, Brent era. So it'll, it'll be a long, strange trip. The longest, <laughs> strangest trip we've taken so far, my friend. Yeah, I don't think there's any jump 
farther, right? 20-year jump. So 20-year yeah, jump I'm... and s- skipping several keyboardists. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. It, it's wild. I'm, I'm bracing myself for it. I'm ready. I think having all these like uh you know sort of later dead shakedown streams in the middle here is it's it's girding me for this because we just enjoyed a, a pure Vince nineteen ninety three show the other night. So yeah, I think I'm yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah, and and you know, yeah, and this has like the Bruce training wheels on it. So, you know, exactly. it, that yeah. that was like that was like unfiltered Vince, but this has got some Bruce in there. So th- th- I think that'll make it a little bit easier. Um well until then, thank you all for listening to this episode on Dick's Eight. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Rob, going through this with you. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just want to say I called it. Like we're pretty much two and a half hours on the on the dot here. I mean, it'll be longer when it comes out as a fully edited episode. But uh, yeah, two and a half hours on Dick's Picks Eight. I think that's that gives it its uh, just due, right? Yeah, and man, we can't go two and a half on nine. I think that would be, <laughs> although we'll see. I don't know. That, we got to talk be... about Bruce and Vince. I feel like that's a, that's a long first set, so we'll uh, see. Well. All right. Well, until then, thanks, everyone. We'll talk some dead at you next time. All right. Talk to you later, folks. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of Thirty Six from the Vault is RJB. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.